This episode will contain TFOS 1576 to 1589. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1576 Story number one. A Midwinter's Night Report. Written by Alt Cipher. Malcolm Backpuck, King Oberon said from atop his throne. We did not expect you to return so quickly. Nor did I, Highness, Puck said as he stood up from his overdeep bow. Yet here I am all the same. Pray tell, what news have you of the human's world? Oberon asked. I was sent by your Highness to infiltrate and investigate the mortal world, Puck said. His words were meant more as an assembled court than the king. The queen, as always, stared down her haughty nose at the hobgoblin. The world of man is no longer fit for fay, nor as a mortal war, a game we should play. The room erupted into barely concealed whispers and titters. Puck heard gasps of treason and liar. Before the icy glare of Oberon closed all lips, Puck could still sense the uneasiness in the air. What say you, trickster, Puck, that the assembled might of the Selly Court cannot overcome a few weak-minded men? Is this betrayal I hear, or simply one of your jests? Every word a truth, I, I remain loyal as ever, my lord. Puck said. He fought the urge to bow again, as obsequiousness was never his most flattering look. How come you to this conclusion, Puck? Queen Titania's lips curled back in disgust as having to address this impish form in front of her. Did you perchance become a seasoned general of my lord king's army on your walk into the throne room? Titania's ladies-in-waiting giggled at their mistress's insult. Nay, my lady. I went to Florida. The woman silent. You see, my lords and ladies, I let the winds of fate set my course and I landed in a new world, a particular area known as Florida. Thankfully, we beings of chaos and mystery have been eclipsed by man. Impossible! Oberon shouted from the throne. Your Highness, I was as gobsmacked as you. On my very first night in Florida, I was accosted by a vagabond man who smelt of... Well, he smelt of cat urine. His wild eyes, unkempt hair, and mouth bereft of teeth shook me to my very core. His speech unintelligible, his actions violent. I had no choice but to defend myself from this creature. I cast a trifling spell calling upon the beasts of the land to aid me. A most hideous-looking reptile crawled from underneath the paveway hissing and scratching, dragging its low-slung armored belly across the macadam. A wild-eyed man knew this wild beast, and called by name Gator, he said. The assembled host were hanging on Puck's every word. As long as he could keep their interest, he knew no harm would come to him. Surely that terrible monster did away with this pitiful human. Who scared you so? Tajania said dismissively. He, uh, assaulted it. Uh, pardon me, Oberon said. The, the wild-eyed man grabbed the skater and, uh, crawled on top of its back. Uh, the man and the gator began uh, t tossing each other about. Uh, soon enough, uh, the man had mostly disrobed and, well, uh, I'm sure I, I don't need to explain the mechanics to you. 
I do not see how a grown man could... Oberon said, then stopped short as Titania caught his eye. No, no, you don't. The next morning, I was passing through a quiet hamlet when one of the motorized vehicles crashed over an embankment, landing inside the second story of a house near me. The residents of the house fled as quickly as they could. However, the driver of the motorized vehicle was struggling and screaming from their perch in what I can only assume was a little girl's room. I thought to investigate, and so climbed to the side of the house. As I reached the motorized vehicle, I opened the door aside and the driver. When I did, several things happened, seemingly at once. The door whipped open, causing me to lose my balance. That is most likely what saved me from receiving a fierce kick to the temple as the driver ejected herself from the vehicle. Atop her head, screeching and crawling, was some sort of small furry animal I later learned was called a raccoon. The driver stumbled over me and fell to her face, which only further enraged the raccoon. Seeing that it was now free of the vehicle, the raccoon then scrambled off the woman's prodigiously bleeding head and ran away as fast as it could. Unfortunately, the raccoon did not realize that it was on the second floor of a house and so fell, landing badly. I learned later that the woman had captured this animal and thought to make it a pet. However, the animal disagreed with this path and became enraged while the woman was driving it to the medical man for animals. Queen Titania was even fallen silent during Puck's story. When Puck finished, she asked, So you met two humans who were insufferable. How say you that we cannot conquer them? One last anecdote, my queen, to clear the issue. I had, later that day, come upon a raging inferno in the middle of the city. A crowd had assembled. Man still gathers around a fire, as they always have. Several large vehicles were gathered around, spraying water at the inferno, with no effect. I asked a man standing next to me what was the purpose of this. He told me that the man had taken a pickup and filled the rear of it with cooking oil. From what I gather, a pickup is another sort of motorized vehicle, with a large cargo area in the rear, much like our wagons. This pickup had dozens upon dozens of gallons of used cooking oil in the rear, as the man thought to somehow recycle it into fuel for his vehicle. He had, apparently, been gathering such oil from various public houses and restaurants in the neighborhood for some time. On this unfortunate day, however, another motorized vehicle had impacted him, setting the cargo of oil ablaze in the middle of the city. The roadway beneath the burning pickup was buckled and melted from the heat, the fire brigade, attempting to quell the blaze, were unable to come close enough as the oil had made the roadway slick for their boots or their vehicles. Forced to stay back, their efforts were most ineffectual. I'm ashamed to say, but the smell was delicious. That is what had caused the crowd to stay. I do not see how this bears on our military ambitions, Titania said. Throughout these and many other sites, the one thing that never failed to amaze me was the reactions of the people watching. To be more precise, it was their lack of reactions. There was little fear, no terror, just mild amusement. What hope for us, warriors of chaos, if man's life is already so utterly random and bedeviled that events such as these evoke no emotional reaction than a slight pause? With what weapons will our armies fight when the opponent cares so little? Oberon said, you have given us much to consider, Puck. Is it possible that a wider journey may produce different results? 
Were you, perhaps, in some manner of reservation for diseased minds? Puck considered a moment before speaking. I do not believe that this is any sort of planned area, sire. I have heard of a land called Tix-Ass, not so far from Florida. In Tix-Ass, they venerate half-man creatures known as Cowboys. Cowboys? How would such a monstrosity come to be? Oberon asked. I know not, sire. There is also the land called California, where people are stretched and flattened, then forced to live upon the silvered screen for all to jape and cheer at, Puck said. We cannot trust this imp, as I said since the farce of the investigation began, Titania said. Nay, my queen, these tales are too outlandish for even Puck to conjure. We will let the world of men pass from our sight. We shall abide until the winds of fate are more favorable. Sire, Puck said, may I also offer a suggestion on doubling other gods? If the world of men were to invade our realm, we may find ourselves destroyed before we were aware of the danger. So be it, Oberon said. End of story. Story number two. Post-mortem, written by MathWiz617. Oblivion had one job. Oversee the transfer of souls from life to afterlife to nothingness. He was good at his job. He enjoyed his job, even. He did not, however, enjoy dealing with human souls. Every being that died would be claimed by a god. The soul would then go to the god's domain for its afterlife, and once totally forgotten amongst the living, would fade to nothing. This was the natural order of things. Humans, however, frequently spat in the face of natural order. The soul was no different. A human soldier who had died in a war on another god's planet. Over a dozen gods had shown up to the soul's assignment tribunal, in addition to the god of Andromeda-2. The gods had spent the last 30 seconds living space-time arguing who got to claim it, and there was no sign of argument calming down. As Odin pointed his spear at Hades, shouting obscenities in whatever language, the death of Andromeda II shot Oblivion a look that clearly said, What did I just get myself into? Oblivion shook his head, clearly frustrated with the situation. However, it was not his job to interfere. Things would work out, one way or another. Another death suddenly appeared, not escorting any soul, but pulling the first death aside, after a short conversation, the new death took the soul by the core and disappeared. Oblivion had waved his hand, clearing the plane of arguing deities. The soul had been claimed. Welcome back to the land of the living, Sergeant. We thought we had lost you. The soldier shakily touched the wound where the plasma bolt had hit him, inches from the center of his chest. I saw the Reaper, he whispered. What happened then? the medic asked. The soldier smiled. Me, uh, apologized for the inconvenience. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1577. Story number one. Humans are exhausting. Written by Trespros. Blinfa had offered to meet his new human co-worker out for drinks after the shift together. Initially, Lympha had doubts on meeting with the new human alone after work. He knew better than most how intense humans could be. 
He'd been raised off-world, and his early education put him in contact with hundreds of human children whose parents had traveled to the asteroid bases for work. Same as Linfa's own parents. He had always gotten along well enough with the human children, but their volume and breadth of emotion and communication could be exhausting. Every word they spoke was stripping with tonalities which conveyed complex and subtle double messages and hidden meanings. The positioning of their feet with their hand movements could signal whether you were a friend or a foe. The dozens of muscles in their faces which tugged at their brow, curled their lips and allowed for flicks of the eye seemed to exist for the sole purpose of communication. Communicating with one, especially one to one, was enough to mentally drain the most observant species as they tried to interpret the literal hundreds of messages a human unconsciously and consciously admitted. But Ellis, his new human co-worker, always seemed a little uh, calmer than other humans, like the tidal wave of emotion was instead a gentle wave. Besides, Lympha had been raised right, and ultimately he had decided to make the first gesture of friendship to his new co-worker, despite how exhausting talking to a human could be. When Lympha eventually asked the human, it was an invitation that was happily accepted by Alice. In fact, Lympha wished that he had asked sooner after seeing the picture-perfect smile on Alice's face as he accepted the offer. Alice's words conveyed no other message than optimism towards their meeting. It was a relief to Lympha, who had expected the complexity that he had learned to always associate with humans. He must have been feeling lonely, Lympha thought to himself, and just so happy that someone reached out. Yet, when Lympha entered the bar after work, he spotted Ellis at the booth by himself. He again was struck by the lack of complexity in Ellis's face and body. He sat firmly in his chair against the wall, his face blank and empty. This wouldn't be unusual for any other species, but struck Lympha as intensely odd. However... Lympha's thoughts quickly disappeared when he took a seat next to his new friend. Ellis's eyes stared at him for a fraction of a second, and after a brief beat, his body, face, and language all exuded happiness. His body relaxed in the chair, and a warm smile stretched over his face. His eyes gained a gentle quality. He greeted Lympha as he sat. Lympha! How are you doing? I'm so glad we're hanging out. Lympha settled into the seat and started to make a small talk with Ellis. They talked about their workload, the defeat of the local basketball team, man, with the humans great at coming up with games, and the attractive human who worked in the office between theirs. At each conversation topic, Lympha was struck by the single tone of the communication the human expressed. Frustration at work, sadness at the team's defeat, lust towards the co-worker. From past experience, Lympha knew this was odd. He expected frustration towards their workload, yes but also a hint of hope in his eyes towards the raise that was coming up, and also fear in his body language that his work wasn't good enough. Most non-humans wouldn't pick up on this, but Lympha had a lifetime experience with humans. Finally, the small talk turned to the plans for the weekend. After Lympha told Ellis all about his plans to visit family, it was Ellis's turn to share. Uh, a funeral. A close friend from Earth died recently. Lympha was shocked by how Ellis delivered this news. His eyes became downturned and he shrank back in his chair. He spoke each word quietly with a downward tonality. He depicted the definition of grief. 
Lympha remembered when the dog of a human friend he knew as a child died. Of course, the human exuded grief towards the dog, but a million other emotions as well. Hate and anger towards the injustice of it. Depression and self-loathing towards not spending more time with their pet while it was alive. And even the tiniest traces of happiness towards all of the attention that they were receiving at school over the tragedy. It was entirely overwhelming, of course. Lympha had to excuse himself after 20 seconds of watching the child and all of her classmates after the news came out. But it was entirely different with Ennis just now. Nellis said all of the things they might expect someone to say. He looked like a grief-struck man, but it just didn't seem right. He just didn't seem human. At least, not how Lympha thought of human. He prodded Ellis for more. Forgive me if I'm overstepping my bounds, but uh, how did your friend die? Ellis raised his eyes from the ground and stared at Lympha for another quarter of a second, his face loosening somewhat during the process. After the quarter of a second passed, the look of grief came over him once more as he responded. Murdered, shot as he was walking back to his car after a night out and left in an alley uh, to bleed to death. Nympha gasped at this news. He was so surprised by this news, he forgot all about his observations. Besides, how dare he judge how a friend grieved a traumatic death? I'm so sorry. I have no idea how someone could do something like that, he said in an attempt to console his friend. Ellis shrugged his shoulders. Yeah, well, some people are just psychopaths. Nympha had never heard of this word before. A psychopath? What's that? You don't have a word for psychopath. Ellis looked to auto-translator off and then again again for good measure. Guess you don't, he said when Lympha still didn't understand the word. Some humans are psychopaths. They're people born without the capacity for emotion. They've got no ingrained morality, like most normal people do. Instead, they usually live their lives with whatever internal logic they develop towards their own self-interest. About 2% of all people are one. Sentient and intelligent life without morality. Lympha was shocked at this news, and he pressed Ellis for more information on the subject. You're telling me that one out of 50 people are murderers, just animals operating on instinct? Ellis calmly shook his head. No... They're not animals, and hardly any of them are murderers. Most live completely normal lives like any other person. It's hard to spot them, too, because they usually do such a good job at faking the emotions that people expect from them. Sometimes they can be a bit manipulative because of their skill of faking emotions, but like I said, hardly any commit serious crime. Nympha thought back to his childhood. You know, I grew up in a human-majority region, I went to school with hundreds of your species. If 2% of them were psychopaths, then surely I must have encountered some, right? Ellis ignored the question and asked one of his own. You grew up around people. You're used to how we talk. Blumfer nodded his head. Oh yes, I'm well aware of humans communicate. I could hardly spend 20 minutes alone with one of you when I made my first human friend. I've gotten used to your species scale of emotions and behavior now, though. Why? I didn't feel overwhelmed at all during our early conversation, not even when you mentioned your friend. Nympha knew that it was a mistake as soon as he said it. Instantly, the human's body transformed as the mention of his dead friend. He looked grief-stricken as before, but other emotions too, anger, depression, uncertainty, and fear washed over his body. 
When he spoke, he spoke with a dozen intonations, each carrying a subtle clue as to what the human was feeling. Right. My friend who died, Addis said to himself, Hey, how about I go get us some drinks? Lympha shot up out of his chair before Ellis got a chance to rise, eager to right his crass mistake. Of course not. Drinks are on me tonight, the whole night. Are you sure? Addis responded. Lympha happily reassured his friend. Of course, I'd be happy to. The human smile and a complex wave of gratitude, hope, and mellow sadness washed over Lympha as he started to turn away to walk over to the bar. No soon as he turned his body, Ellis's body turned black again. God, Ellis thought to himself, this is going to be an exhausting night. Ben of Story Story number two. No one will buy human weapons anymore. Written by Damaged Dice DM. It's rare for opposing factions to agree to many terms at the onset of a conflict. But more and more warring species are agreeing to not purchase human weaponry for their conflicts. Several studies have shown that any conflict where human weapons are involved, the casualty rate is 600% higher than the average for conflicts where they are absent. This number is of course skewed by the fact that those conflicts were mostly species going against humans early in their history of space exploration before they knew better. There are many reasons for this. The main one being that weapons designed to kill a human, one of the most hearty beings in the universe, are almost without exception excessive to kill almost anything outside of the same megafauna on Death World Class 7 and above. The other reason being that the humans seem to have an unlimited supply of them and could supply 100% of the population of an entire system completely from current stock at a moment's notice, with no additional reduction. This also meant that if one of the sides was to break this rule, the other side could have their own human weapons within a day. Ironically, this also extended to human shielding as it had evolved alongside human weapons it made almost all non-human weapons utterly useless, and would lead to long drawn-out combats with almost no casualties or damage and basically make it impossible to win or lose a war. No one was crazy enough to attack humans, so war became a very frustrating endeavor. This is, ironically, how the humans brought peace to the galaxy. When one side would start to lose, they would buy human weapons and shields, and the other side would do the same and they would end in a stalemate every time to the point that they just stopped waging war at all. As the humans say, an armed society is a polite society. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1578 Story Double One The Mark, written by Arclight Magus Siltip was drinking quietly in an otherwise noisy bar. It was a typically outlaw bar on a mining colony. Plenty of ruffians, hard cases, wanted beings, and the odd respectable who was just passing through. Her glass of Siberium had been hard-earned this week, having served 11 maintenance cycles. But on a station like this, one was either useful or driftwood. She was so lost in her thoughts of Siberium, it took her a moment to realize that the bar had gone quiet. Deathly so. Looking around, she spotted the reason at the door. It wasn't a particularly remarkable being who stood there. 
Average build, excess heat emissions marking it as slightly exothermic, and not especially well-dressed. But the bit that made the bar quiet and stay quiet was the mark. It was no ordinary mark, but rather a special mark by the council. And while the council's lawbringers would hold little sway out here, we all knew full well that this sort of mark was special. Only one species had been condemned by the council following the Kanon conflict. Only one species had dared to be the savages needed to end it. And for those acts, the councils had decreed that all members of that species would be forever marked and unable to hide that mark. Humans. But the being who stood in the doorway and who started to amble over to the bar didn't seem worthy of the mark. It didn't seem capable of all that propaganda the council had claimed. The being, a man, by the sound of the movement of it, sat a few seats away from Siltip and passed the chit to the bartender. Dutifully, the bartender provided a transparent receptacle and filled it with golden brown liquid. Siltip had no illusions that it wasn't unlike her own Siberium or something equally as poisonous to the members of the species which developed it. The noise had gone back up slightly, but remained lower than previous. Siltip looked around, a tad worried, both at the man sitting a few seats away from her, and the room at large of people looking to make the name for themselves. And getting a being with a council mark wouldn't hurt any of their reputations. Siltip didn't have to wait long, though, and while the man was hunched over the bar, as most beings did, the mark remained visible. The traces of blue emblazoned with a swath of his animal hide covering back. But here came one of them now. It was a tigran by the name of Dractus, if memory served her. He was a local thug, one of the harder-headed ones, and sadly, one of the more successful ones because of it. He had a body count in the triple digits, and a few of the local lawbringers would even dream of crossing him or trying to bring him in. Dractus didn't even give any warnings beyond these footsteps and grunts towards the human. The human seemed entirely not to notice. Dractus swung for the human's back and... Uh, missed? Siltip couldn't quite believe it and was having trouble seeing how it had happened and what had happened next only confused him more. Did you slip, good being? The human asked, turning to face the Tigran, with no tone of derision or mockery that Siltip could detect. Sadly, Dractus already was halfway into the bottle of rectal, and tended to get a bit blurred-crazed in the fight, so the subtlety was lost in him. Dractus swung again at the human's head, and missed again. This was not a sort of thing that Dractus was known for, and with a speed that he was rarely known for, he recovered and swung again, heavily, sent a mass on the human, and he missed. Mostly. The receptacle of brownish fluid went flying and crashed on the floor, splattering the pooling. A look about the human's face changed significant, and from what Siltip could see, even more heat began to radiate off the human. You will replace that drink or you will die, Tigran, the human said in a calm voice. Siltip could hardly believe that the human hadn't been hit yet and was still attempting some level of reason. Many of her race would have either curled up into a protective ball or begun begging for peace. Just die! Dactus managed to spit out from his intoxicated vocal center before taking another swing at the human, and this time 
Siltup and the rest of the boss sort, the human snatched the Tigran's swinging manipulator and froze it in place, throwing the Tigran completely off balance. The Tigran appeared completely stuck, and the manipulator locked in place by the human's own manipulator. Dractus almost seemed to panic with his new development, but the human seemed impassive, as though this were a puzzle to be studied. And then the human thrust out their other manipulator and grasped Gractus's primary throat. And so shall I pass judgment on you, Tigran, for the crime of spilling my drink, the human said clearly and loudly for the whole bar to hear. And in a blur of motion, Gractus was on the floor, his primary throat clearly ripped completely from his body and his juices spilling out onto the floor of the bar. The human then dropped the detached primary throat of Dractus to the floor next to the dying Tigran before looking around the bar again, as though daring any who would challenge him to do it now. But for all the hard cases, wanted beings and fools who frequently have had too much to drink, none would challenge him. The human and the bartender shared a look and nod, and the bartender produced a second receptacle and filled it with a drink once more. The bar was almost silent as the human finished his drink and the Dractus body stiffened. As quickly and as quietly as the human had come, he'd left, the faint blue traces of the mark still showing his animal hide garment. The mark of wrath. End of story. Story number two. Dove, written by Semi-Loki. We welcome you. These words were left here for you. Carved ancient rock under layers of ice on this rogue world. A world that was ejected from its parent solar system before life on your own world evolved. A wanderer of the galaxy, no longer claiming any stars as its home. We leave these words behind for you. Because we know that by the time you discover these words and have developed the ability to decipher their meaning, then you too will be a wanderer, calling no single star your home. Yes, we know you. When you were younger and first gazed upon the stars with your telescopes, we were always looking back. When you later discovered radio and listened to the stars, we heard you then. We know you. We have watched you, though you did not see us watching you. We have watched you grow. We wept when we saw you stumble and cried out in elation as you progressed, despite these setbacks. We watched from afar and have waited, waited for so long for you to find us. We are so proud of you right now. Yes, we have been absent parents. We have neglected you. We have forced you to learn your lessons harshly. We wanted to help, to guide you to the right path. We wanted to be generous parents. We have tried that before with those who have walked this path before you. We've tried, but we failed them. You had to struggle to know that you could fight. You had to fall so that you knew that you could stand up again. You had to fail to know the joy of victory. Your life and your achievements are not a gift from us. It is something you have won by your own devices. We 
are so very proud of you. We know this way has been hard for you. We know that you continue to struggle and that you have felt all alone for a very long time. We know you struggle and, despite your achievements, you still feel that you are on the cusp of disaster. We know this because we stood where you now stand. We had none to guide us and, though we searched, we too felt alone. Though you did not realize it, you have followed a trail blazed by others that came before you. Our footsteps have now faded and the path is overgrown. However, unlike you, when we gazed out upon the stars, there was no one looking back. We were the first. A race of people who originated on a planet has long been devoured by a dying sun. We know your pain. We know you have waited a long time for this moment. We have been waiting even longer for you. Your journey is almost over. You have been cast adrift in a sea of misfortune for so very long. Hope is in scarce supply. But you must stay the course and not give up. The floods will retreat. You can survive this next challenge. When you do, you'll find us on the shore waiting for you. Again, we welcome you to the stars and what lies beyond. We are the humans. Come and find us. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1579 Story number one. The three great motivations of humankind. Written by Random3x Malai walked down the hallway towards a grand ceremony where a human inventor, of all things, would be awarded the Star Bell Prize. Miley was beside himself with ire that such a thing had been allowed to pass. This was an award meant for the greatest minds and engineers of the universe. For such an insignificant race such as humanity to be awarded it was beyond his ability to comprehend. Though it defied his will, it did not defy the councils, and he was but a humble servant of the council themselves. Arriving near the stage, he could see the podium where the host of the category before his was giving his speech, extolling the virtues of the recipient of the Star Bell Prize for Peace. I would like to thank the Helicopter Pip, the destroyer of souls, for bringing peace to the Arcadia Sector. For, with this tireless effort, conflict is no longer in the minds and souls of the Sector's inhabitants. The host announced, gesturing to the other side of the stage. Slithering out of the shadowy area was a visceral horror, a being so indescribable that no two beings ever saw the same thing. The audience all clapped in near-perfect robotic unison. Well, I had no doubt that the creature was using some kind of psychic field to induce such a phenomenon. It was even Valai's suspicion this creature used such a power to induce peaceful sentiments in the mind of the two warring races. Still, it mattered little. The results spoke for themselves. Two races that were at war with one another for centuries, slaughtering in countless worlds, now held a steady and lasting peace. The creature accepted the award and turned to face the audience. 
minutes of silence dragged on until the audience gave a robotic laugh. Evidently, did it conveyed a minor joke. Then, with a bob of what might be its head, it slithered away, and it was Vali's turn to present the award. Walking onto the stage, Vali approached the podium and swallowed his vitriol. From what he'd been told, the human in question had requested Vali be the one to present the award. Such a human must not know him well if that was the case. Thank you, everyone, Vali began. We are here to award the Starbar Prize for Engineering. Long have engineers, scientists, and all manner of intelligent species dreamed of making personalized wormhole devices. But due to the Vistari constant, the ability to miniaturize the mechanics was deemed that of fiction. Well, I paused to sweep his gaze over the audience. It is this constant that has only recently been disproven and overcome by the wiliest of species, the human engineer known as Nigel Planar worked tirelessly to solve the problem that all before had failed. Belai gestured to his left, where the human named Nigel walked out and waved to the audience that was now applauding. Looking at the features of the human, Belai felt a spark of recognition but couldn't place where he recognized him from. Holding out the award for the human, Belai swallowed the bile that had surged upwards. He held the opinion humans were the most disgusting of species around. Stepping aside to allow the human Nigel access to the podium, Vali stealthily wiped his hand on his robe in an attempt to remove the human particles from his being. Thank you, thank you, Nigel gestured for the applause to calm down. I'm here because I achieved something many deemed impossible. But what drove me to attempt such a thing? He rhetorically asked. You see, we humans are motivated by three things. Sometimes it can be all three, others it'll be just one. But, at the end of the day, it is my opinion that it is these three that guide humans to develop as we do. What are these three, you may ask? Well, the first is a genuine fascination. We are like children overflowing with wonder. Our eyes light up, and we can't help but push further than any sane sentient would. Nigel paused and swept his gaze over the raptured audience before holding up two fingers. The second is ego. Many inventions have been made due to the human's desire to be remembered for recognition and all that comes with it. This award would be a dream come true for one motivated as such, Nigel said, holding up the Starbell prize aloft. I, however, am not these first two categories. Well, maybe a little bit of the first, he said with a chuckle that was echoed back by some of the audience. You see, I am firmly in the third category. And it is Sir Vali I can thank for putting me in that category and motivating me to make my creation. Nigel gestured to Vali, who was stunned at being referenced at all. He felt a swell of pride at being indirectly responsible for this invention, albeit slightly tainted pride due to the human being responsible. You see, dear people, the third motivator is... Spite. Nigel paused as there was murmurs of shock. Vali himself was stunned at the statement. You see, we humans can be motivated to prove something to someone who has wronged us. Many years ago, I met Sir Valai. Then he scoffed at my work, said that it was the most primitive and ugly creation he'd ever seen, and my ideas on creating miniaturized wormhole device were laughable. In fact, he did laugh loudly in my face, if I recall correctly. 
Vali began retreating slowly as Nigel continued. That night, a burning desire to see him swallow his words was born. I worked day and night and found a way to do what all before had deemed impossible. My dear audience, we humans are creatures that will achieve great things if properly motivated. Sometimes it is just a feck you to a certain someone. Nigel turned to face Vali and held up his middle finger. Feck you, Sir Vali. Your name will forever be a joke. With those final words, Nigel bowed and left the stage. End of story. Story number two. Tide's Turn, written by British Tea Company. Exactly 134 years ago, one of the most infamous events in galactic history transpired upon the moon of Ares Cecidus, now the largest military research facility within the heart of the Terran Empire. Prior to that, the Terran Empire, known as the United Colonies of Terra, had been a fledgling, star-faring civilization which had felt the jackboot of the Morven Imperium. The Terran Navy had been in splinters, crushed by numerical and technological superior forces of the Morvan race. After the scourging of their homeworld of Terra, it would seem as though the Terrans would have no choice but to submit to the Morvan rule, like so many other races before them. The first step on the subjugation was to pay vast tributes to the moon of Arisacetus, where a large naval base had been erected as a staging point against the Terran civilization. Demanding hefty sums of tribute, the Morvan would beggar their new additions to the Imperium and further cement the difference between master and slave. Throughout the entire week of the negotiated surrender, thousands of cargo ships were sent to Arisacetus to drop off the tribute that was demanded. The fortress's countless senses confirmed that the Terrans had indeed been true to their end of the bargain. If there was still one lifeline that the Terrans had to that time, however, it was their masterful use of deception. The Morvan fortress on Arisacetus had been outfitted with the most advanced scanning technology known to the galaxy to know that the Terrans would fulfill the end of the bargain had just one alien bothered to personally check the containers, the Terran future would have been lost to an age of servitude. But that would not have to be the case, as the entirety of Cecidus busily gorged itself in celebration for the evening. The heavy usage of cloaking which Terrans used in their wars wasn't enough to win them the war, but it would certainly win them their future, as more van scanners picked up cargo ships filled to the brim with precious metals and chemicals, rather than hordes of unbroken Terran army, bitter over the bombardment of their homeworld. These soldiers, who had undertaken this mission, had never received mercy in a single time in their long battle against the Imperium. They would not be generous enough to give it back. It was midnight when the cargo containers burst open all throughout the storage within the Morvan fortress. Armed to the teeth, from shotguns to flamethrowers, axes to swords, the Terran army had prepared itself for the most brutal and bloody coast quarters battle that they had seen in their enemy's home. To their luck, they had found that the entire garrison and the majority of the crews had been heavily celebrating, many of them on the verge of passing out from the heavy whining and dining. The Battle of Arisacetus was not infamous, 
because it was in reality a massacre which changed the tide of a losing war. It was infamous because of the sheer brutality and savagery the Terran army embraced in its retribution against the Morvans. The lucky ones had been torn apart by shotgun blasts or beheaded in their drunken stupor, oblivious to the Terran attack. Most were not granted quick deaths. Dozens of mess halls were transformed into screaming funeral pyres as the Terrans set fire inside and locked the doors. Those that didn't meet Hal's fires saw no better fate. Helpless and unarmed, the hated Morvans were thrown out of airlocks, lynched, dismembered, clubbed to death, flayed alive, and some were even crucified. The Terrans took full glee in their deeds following the massacre as they commandeered the fortress and took what they were looking for, the armada that was moored in the dry docks. Images of the slaughter were leaked to Morva Prime, capital of the Morvan Imperium, as the Imperium's leadership reeled in the mobilized and other falls to deal with the resurgent Terran military power, a chilling message was displayed to the aliens. We are coming for you. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1580. Story number one. The sun never sets. Written by Foxcorp. Emperor Rolnar marched through the ash-choked streets of what was once Earth, flanked by hundreds of security agents and support personnel. They marched in unison towards the last building left non-decimated in this desecrated world. Bodies, blood, and gore were ever-present, building in craters, dips, and depressions like sick biological concrete. Death was everywhere in this once mighty world. Yet, how it came to be as a story, what remains of the galaxy would rather leave unheard. In the year 2796, first contact with the bipedal race of omnivores was made in orbit of Icarus 1-B172, a red supergiant star under close study due to its high probability of exploding in a supernova within a standard cycle. They were an overlooked part of the galaxy and thus had stayed under our radar for quite some time. Yet, in this time, they had advanced into powerful interstellar empire. These bipedal omnivores would end up being humans. They had sent a scientific research vessel to the system, much like we had in the hopes of studying the last moments of a dying star. This star was known to them as Betelgeuse, a very culturally significant star in one of their most prominent constellations. The star was set to explode in one human month, and the researchers of both parties were more interested in the star than each other. As was standard procedure with first contact, a boarding party was sent to secure the new species and hopefully peacefully take them into questioning vicinity. From there, an evaluation would be held regarding the eligibility of said species to join the Empire of the Stars. But fortunately, the humans had a society in which boarding was synonymous with aggression. They responded likewise, killing over half of the details sent to secure them. 57 humans were killed, and over 568 Imperial shock troopers were killed during the boarding. Such horrendous casualties would only be a precursor of what was 
to come. Within the day, five human warships had assembled in the Beetlejuice system. They were broadcasting on all frequencies for five hours and thirty minutes, something pertaining to the sun never setting, before ten warships of the Imperial fleet jumped into the system. Within ten minutes, hostilities erupted, all Imperial ships were destroyed, and all but one human ship was destroyed. The remaining human ship, Royal Flame, began to sift through the wreckage of the Imperial ships, and what they found sealed the fate of quintillions of beings. Coordinates to every single system in the Empire. Naval tactics, communications, and economics. Everything the Empire had at its disposal was turned against us. Upon finding such a treasure trove of information, humanity pounced upon everything they could get their hands on. Money was siphoned into nothingness, and communications were completely shut down. Our economy was all but shattered. While our empire was in the dark, our convoys and logistics vessels were ambushed and destroyed. Not only was our empire's economy on life support, but humanity was also actively nuking the plug from orbit. Humans were an overzealous in their efforts, however. They were a nation of very small number of stars, while hundreds of thousands were not capable of being stopped for long. Our fleets regained the initiative and purged them station by station, world by world, star by star. The war was a losing one for the humans. We were in ruins. They were turned into dust. When our fleets finally reached Earth after 50 years of fighting, they launched billions of drones, ships, munitions, and lives to stop our advance. We nearly lost everything, but they broke before our fleets did. They took down such a terrible number that our growth rate across the stars slumped by an entire order of magnitude. Whether or not humanity was justified in its war against the Empire was widely debated across the Empire. They only tried to survive, after all. But at the end of the day, they had won. And to the victors go the spoils. Or so the Empire thought. When the Emperor and his entourage entered the final tomb of humanity, they were greeted by a massive hallway that descended well over 25 miles below the surface. After taking a vehicle down the hall, the entourage was greeted by a massive array of screens and supercomputers. They'd entered the crypt of the human leader, Queen Elizabeth II. The screens all displayed the visage of an elderly woman standing in front of a large clock tower. She greeted the entourage with a smile and said, Welcome to the underground section of Buckingham Palace. I hope the accommodations pertain to your liking. The Emperor was stunned. How do you still live? Always have, always will. This computer contains but a shred of my collective consciousness. Perhaps we should travel to your palace for tea. Tea? The entire world seemed to rumble and come to life. Massive drives and thrusters spun up and they unveiled themselves. After a matter of minutes, the entire planet entered FTL. The Emperor panicked and began to flee the underground bunker. He reached the surface just in time for Earth to come back to reality. The smog had completely cleared, replaced by a beautiful visage of Imperion, the throne system of the Empire. Empiris, the star of the system, was dimmed by the gargantuan ring that encased it. On the surface lived one quadrillion beings. 
The mere presence of Earth's gravity was placing an enormous strain on the structure, and the security forces were already on their way. Monsters and loudspeakers began to arise from the glass ground. The palace is nice, but not satisfactory to a queen. Renovations are in order. The emperor was confused, he muttered. Res reservations? Just then, the pieces of his mind clicked and came in a shocking realization. He panicked and tried to flee to his spacecraft, but it was too late. The massive engines of the planet were racing at full speed towards the ring. Even before the impact, the ring buckled under the tremendous strength of Earth's gravity long before the collision. It shattered into billions of pieces in a glorious volley of explosions, like a pane of glass being shattered by a guided missile. The overkill was absolute. When the first impact occurred, the computers contained in the consciousness of the Queen and everyone else on Earth lifted off, content in the fact that they'd had their revenge. The ring and everyone on it, as well as the Emperor and his entourage, were destroyed. Human victory was absolute. Humanity seemingly lost everything, but in reality, just made themselves look weak to protect their true secret. Arc ships had seeded the entire uninhabited galaxy, and the human economy and industrial capacity were only growing all of the Empire's strength was negligible compared to the human knowledge gained in the first months of the war. It would be another thousand years before the dust settled, humanity and the Empire resting in a turbulent peace. In those thousand years, countless Emperors rose and fell, but the Queen still remained. Only one thing could be learned from this insane fact. The sun never truly sets on the human Empire. End of story. Story number two. Building bridges written by Dragonson 04. It's not that there's nowhere to run. There's a whole universe out there. It just won't help you. That was the accepted rule. If your planet was brought to the brink by invasion, asteroid, rampant disease, or random wandering black hole, you were on your own. That was the rule that we all followed. No connections, no real way to ask for help. We were all on our own. We were all isolated, insulated, completely content to ignore and be ignored by the rest of them. There was no grand galaxy spanning council, or empire, or singular government body to make things work. We were all aware of all of these others, and we all had nothing to do with anyone who wasn't us. Until one day... A new group entered our sight. No one had ever expected an advanced civilization to come from a backwater branch of the galaxy. These humans, using their own technology, had made it to the stars, like the rest of us. They had previously thought that they were utterly alone. Like the rest of us, they were cautious. And a few were blatantly suspicious, like the rest of us. But... Within that confusion was a willingness to lower barriers, reach out and help in whatever was needed, unlike the rest of us. The first major incident was on a planet known as Gorus. It had been suffering a lack of rain for many, many cycles. An entire generation had passed since the last drop fell. They'd done the best they could, and strict population control and rationing had brought them time. But it wasn't going to last for much longer. 
The Gorians looked at the humans and, for the first time in the galactic history, said, Help us. The human response was, to say the least, astonishing. The hyperlanes of Goros were soon clogged up with ships full of supplies, and there scientists got to work as soon as they touched the ground. Their own brand of atmospheric probes quickly identified the problem. The core of Goros had slowed down to the point that the magnetic field was too weak to stop solar winds from stripping the outer layers of the atmosphere. It was still strong enough to keep the people breathing, but the gases that made up their liquid rain were all but gone. As the humans learned this, they did the unthinkable. They offered what they called asylum in the Gorians on their own home world of Earth. Gorians were beyond shock to say nothing of the rest of us, a sovereign planet offering that much aid to little more. The strangers, how? Why? Don't they know the rule? The aid was odd enough, but this asylum concept was a thing unheard of. An offer of land, resources, and certain amount of autonomy on another planet. Not enslavement, not forced labor, no demand of payment. Who were these humans to think in such a way? Why did they think in such a way? The humans gained a full attention of the galaxy at that point. We all watched from our insulated little bubbles. As the humans continued to defy everything that was an accepted rule. Offers of commerce, offers to teach and request to learn, promises, pacts, contracts, verbal agreements, and even just a handshake was enough for a human to take your word. And yet, only a few fools took advantage of that. Slowly, I saw the galaxy change under their guidance. We started to talk. We started to have an interest in others. We then started to care. When another planet called Arknov suffered an unnatural disaster in the form of a hyperlane gate destroyed their moon, the humans weren't the first to respond this time. The Arknovites asked for help, and the Yodan responded. The Yodan were masters of planetary engineering, and using a nearby asteroid field, created a new moon for the Arknovites. The act, sparked by an example of the humans, changed everything. Within a single cycle, there were metaphorical bridges spanning the galaxy, and all who walked on them were friends to each other, and the new head of the Galactic Federation, known as the Bridge Builders. The Humans. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1581 Story number one. Shooting Stars, written by Zentaps. Something that people tend to forget when it comes to space travel is Newton's first law of motion. The first law of motion is often stated as thus, an object at rest stays at rest, and an object in motion stays in motion with the same speed and in the same direction, unless acted upon by an unbalanced force. In layman's terms, this means that if you threw an object, it would continue to move indefinitely. Of course, on a planet, there are external forces like gravity and drag that will act against the object and bring it to rest through collision with the ground. But in the void of space, none of these factors exist. For space travel, this means what whatever amount of energy propelled you forward must also be used to slow you down. In the late 21st century, a meteorite exploded over San Francisco. The shock wave toppled buildings, shattered concrete, and took many lives. The resulting destruction led to a massive outcry and resulted in the formation of stellar tracking. 
an organization drawing membership from many parts of the world, tasked with a monumental task of tracking objects in the solar system. To achieve this task, an array of satellites and deep space radar were created to watch the cosmos. As humans began to venture into the stars, the ST expanded its role to help ships navigate through the designated safe lanes in space. In the 23rd century, when the commercial mining of asteroid belt was still in its adolescence and the colonization of Mars was just nearing completion, the all-hauler Regulus reported engine trouble before losing contact en route past Io, the moon of Jupiter. Those 32 souls aboard the Regulus might have been forever lost if it wasn't for ST Station 22, a simple radar platform which kept eyes on the local region. As the incident progressed, they listened to the radio transmissions, turned to distress calls. The whole system tuned in on the broadcasts of the tragedy. Station 22 could track the ore hauler on their scopes, watching it go further and further, of course. Soon, the ore hauler would be out of range of any possible help. The crew of Station 22 made a decision to attempt to intercept. Three jumping into small shuttle and the other half of the crew plotting a course and making up the rest of the plan. There was no plan in place and no precedent to follow. No one had ever attempted this sort of rescue before. To catch up with the lost ore hauler, the shuttle would have to push itself to its maximum acceleration to reach a high speed of travel the ore hauler was moving at. An interesting thing to note about human physiology, humans can function at any speed. The distinction to make is in regards to acceleration. As the saying goes, it wasn't the speed of the crash which killed them, but the sudden deacceleration. And as physics teacher would tell you, deacceleration is not a thing and acceleration is always possible, but that is something unimportant to the story. The ST shuttle crew pushed themselves to the limits. Two passed out as they accelerated their small craft to match the speed of the outer control ship as they raced to intercept. But they succeeded, and in two days' time reached the radio contact with the freighter. The freighter had lost control of its engines, all fuel reserves spent in an uncontrolled and unplanned burn, unable to change their velocity and no longer accelerating. Carefully, the shuttle matched, dialed in to match the speed of the freighter. A miscalculation would result in the destruction of the shuttle and ensure the doom of the ore hauler. And then slowly, as the whole world watched, they docked with the ship. As simple as that sounds, it is no small feat. The target, a little bit bigger than door as a landing pad, the connection had to be seamless and smooth. No margin for error. But it was done. It took only a few minutes for the freighter crew to be evacuated into the shuttle. After that, the shuttle detached and began to reverse burn to return to the solar system and civilization, nearly depleting its remaining fuel. The success of their mission rippling across the solar system as the information traveled at light speed, the entire crew of Station 22 were hailed as heroes. They broke records on that day of history. Faster speeds for a human in space, greatest amount of acceleration endured, furthest distance out of the solar system for a living human being. Stellar tracking was remade, becoming known as the Stellar Tracking and rescue, colloquially known as stars. In addition to their prior duties of navigation and guidance, they now act as the first responders, 
providing aid to distress calls, chasing down rogue under-control ships, helping those when they are most alone. It came to be that when a breakthrough in engine technology was made, the prototypes were given to the stars. In this way, the stars would always have the fastest ships to accomplish their mission. And when interstellar travel was discovered and humanity set off to explore the galaxy, the stars continued to grow. Their role became even more critical during contact wars, and the following fortress wars in which they monitored space for alien incursion. When the wars ended, the stars returned to their roots. Like air traffic controllers of old Earth, they guided vessels through the many dangers of space, micrometeors, electromagnetic storms, and drifting hazards. As contact with friendly alien species was made, the stars continued to distinguish themselves, extending their hands to anyone at any species in need. Their daring rescues, exemplary of their high resilience and willingness to try when others would not. A notable operation of theirs was the rescue of a massive out-of-control alien dreadnought on collision course with a densely populated planet of billions. The crew aboard the dreadnought immobilized from the high speeds, the heavy shields too powerful to sufficiently destroy the dreadnought in time. The collision of the dreadnought with the planet was expected to kill hundreds of millions, even with the evacuation underway. Then... The stars entered the picture, swooping across the sky, blazing trails of light as they cut through the darkness. Over 100 modified star shuttles slipped through the shields and attached to the hull of the dreadnought, and using their engines, they diverted the colossal ship from a collision path, preventing a planetary disaster and gaining the goodwill of an entire species. It was this mission that earned them the nickname The Shooting Stars, and the name stuck, their ion trails as they blazed across the sky becoming a symbol of how humanity dares. Men of Story Story number two. Know Your Place, written by Aranya P. Know your place, human, said the representative Messon of the Cylon. You are the newest member of the galactic community, and we are the first. We were already colonizing the known space while the others were still fighting themselves or launching rockets into the sky of their homeworld. And that was when your people had just started leaving the nomadic lifestyle behind in favor of cities because it was easier to make beer that way. Messon reminded. His black, shiny eyes looked upon the human representative before him. You have no right to colonize as fast as you are right now. You have not the honor of the Alkari, the ages of the Sakra, and the straightforwardness of the Balrati, nor the rights to conquest of the Mishran. And you will see those colonies to more deserving members, or else you shall face war. The Cylon threatened. Representative Reynold had been quiet, but at the threat of war, he could not help but crack a smile and chuckle. <laughs> war? Do you even know what you're saying? He asked, trying and fading to control his laughter. True, <laughs> we are the youngest member of the council. True, that we do not have a long history of honor of the Alkari, the age of the Sakra, the durability of the Balrathi, or the predatory powers of the Mershan. We don't even have the so-called enlightenment you yours. 
the human admitted. But before Mason could look half-pleased, Reynolds continued. But if you mistake that as making us weak, you will find yourself very, very wrong. We are not like any others here, and you cannot simply group us into any one of them. We are not as durable as the Barathi, so we dig into our planet and forge armor. We are not as old as the Sakra, so time is precious and we do not waste. We are not honor-bound as the Alkari, so we have been making warships since before the day we joined, Manolt said, letting that sink in for a moment. Look at me! Look at my limbs, my claws, my fang, my head. I have no natural weapon. Compared to the Mishan, compared to any of the other species of the Council, I am weak. The only thing that I have that makes me dangerous is this, he said, tapping the side of his skull. I was not born into the role of a predator. I choose to be a predator. In what we lack, we make it ourselves better than what evolution could have done. You say that you've been conquering stars since the day that we were still but wandering nomad tribes in our world. Well, today we are amongst you in the stars, and you are still the very same spot that you were. Reynolds straightened his back as he stared straight ahead at the representative Messon. You threaten us with war, but what kind of war? Is it the kind the Alkari fright, where battles are settled with honorable jewels, like the Mershan? Where they take what they can and no more. Or perhaps like yours, where isolation and boycotts are the best you can do. Reynolds asked. He can see the Cylons are agitated now. No doubt, restaunts. We've seen how you fight. We've seen what you called war. And I'm going to assume that you've never seen how humanity fights. Our wars are not like yours. If war were to be declared, we will not settle disputes with personal duels, nor would we stop simply because we were full to let our enemies rest and repopulate. Menel shook his head. No! Humanity fights! We fight war of extermination! You will find our grandest fleets chasing your fleets from the borders all the way to your own world. The nuclear fire will be the hell that you and your children burn in! The human threatened before his posture relaxes. But despite that, we can do all of that. Humanity desires peace. A true universal peace. And we will do anything to achieve it. Even if it means humanity will be the only species left in the known universe. The human's hands came together in a clasp as he looked straight into the black eyes of the Cylon across the table from him. So, Representative Masson, for your sake, I hope that you will never see how humanity wage wars. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1582 Story number one. Hell has no fury like a human scorned. Written by Damage Dice DM so, just to get this out of the way, we the Akkadian species understand what spite is. That is, we know the concept of spite. Although, what we consider spite is not even in the same galaxy as human spite, in terms of willingness to return offense 100-fold. And we were about to get quite an advanced lesson on the subject due to our interactions with the human race. 
to be fair, to the humans. We started it. Our world started using one of their systems to dump our waste. A simple mistake, but we had been doing it for several cycles by the time anyone had contacted us about it to stop. But it was a profitable practice, so we had initially refused. Humans, a relatively new race at this point, had held no standing on the Galactic Council, so there was little they could do to stop us. Well, there was our initial thought at least. We did not understand how the human spite worked then. If we had, we would have cleaned up the waste immediately and left the system for good. About a cycle after the refusal to stop the practices, the first waste disposal vessel bubbled back into our system. Unresponsive to our hails, it seemed that its communication systems were offline and was operating autonomously. The ship parked over the Acadian homeworld Gulvera before its cargo bay opened, and human refuse poured into our upper atmosphere. All manner of garbage, swelled foods, disposable food containers, something atrocious called a diaper. Our response was to send escort ships to ensure the safety of the waste disposal vessels, each with its own frigate, would ensure the small human colony would not be able to attack them again. Even though they denied any knowledge of any official action taken against the Acadian ship. That worked for about half a cycle, before the waste ships and frigates started coming back with about half their cargo stuck to their hulls. Apparently, humans had figured out some kind of subspace mine that if a ship hit, the hull would polarize, attract anything around you to it. We started to put the waste into large containers and fire them into the area before blowing them up at a distance. We thought that we had won our little cold war. We were wrong. So wrong. We did not have any new developments for over four cycles, which we took to mean the humans had just accepted that they had been bettered. This uh, was not the case. It started slowly. Scattered reports of human trash showing up all over Gilvara and several other Acadian colonies. Not large amounts, but a single pieces of small clusters seemingly showing up out of nowhere. The reports started to increase until there were thousands, varying from food waste falling from the sky to human foot covering appearing inside of a moving vehicle. No one knew how the trash was getting there, and no one knew how to stop it. We knew who was doing it, but couldn't prove how they were doing it. The Galactic Council refused to get involved no matter how much we pled. In a last-ditch effort, we launched a military campaign to the system. As the Amada approached, their scanners picked up a large object in their current path. They gave the signal to slow and came to a stop in front of the massive ball of waste. Every single unaccounted-for piece of waste we had dumped in the system, plus a bit of their own for good measure. Floating near the moon-sized ball of waste was a beacon then started transmitting as the ships approached. The monitor displayed a colorful cartoon character and was narrated by a smooth, happy-sounding male human voice. It seemed to be produced in a fashion to be targeted to children. The message played, Greetings, travelers, and welcome to Alpha Echo 9. Perhaps you're wondering what this little giant ball of trash is doing floating right in your path. Well, let me tell you, this is a collection of waste dumped here by a bunch of intergalactic arseholes. The recording's tone was strangely upbeat and cheerful. If you are the said galactic assholes, we suggest that you take a garbage and leave now. The cartoon switched to a large amount of ships approaching a cartoon version of the ball. 
Now we know what you're thinking. Who are these humans to tell us what to do? Well, let me tell you. The tone of the narrator almost seemed like he was trying to sell something, which its upbeat inflections. The image shifted to a cartoon lab with the same character dressed in a lab coat. Both scientists, our scientists, found a great solution to our own trash problem using quantum entanglement. The two cartoon atoms appeared on the screen. Using a new process, we can entangle these two little guys right here to make them the bestest of friends. The two atoms hugged on the screen. And now, if we hand this little guy to something to hold, they pressed a piece of trash into one of the atoms' adorable cartoon hands. Well, he will share it with his friend. The trash disappeared from the atom and appeared across the table at the other one. And you want to know the best part? The narrator let the question hang for a moment to build suspense. It doesn't matter how far apart they are, they will always be willing to share. The picture changed to a cartoon planet that looked strikingly like Galvera, and the atom sat on top of it, waving his piece of trash. I know what you're thinking, this is trash the only thing that they like to share? No. The cartoon image faded to a warehouse full of cartoon-looking bombs. Now how about you be a pal and pick up after yourself and get the hell out of our system before we get any more ideas about these buddies sharing some nice gifts? How about it? The transmission went dark. Command was contacted. The warships repurposed to removing the garbage immediately. It took a whole 20 cycles to do and a cost of half our annual gross production to do. They have never stopped sending their garbage. We also learned recently that they've been accepted to the Galactic Council in a leadership position, which they secured by promising a technology to the Galactic members' civilizations to help them get rid of their waste. <sighs> Hell, have no fury, like a human scorned. Men of Story Story number two. What makes them stand tall? Written by Hero Kuki. You may not realize it, but this is a question as old as sentience itself. On that was born along the very first and will die with the very last. What makes them stand tall? This has many answers and many are wrong. They are bipedal, low gravity, a quirk of nature, honor, a strong will, or the need to explore are all answers that have, are, and will be given. We know all of them, for we stand tall to remember what should be forgotten, to write what should be erased, and to unearth what should have remained locked away in tombs and graves. So all reasons are found and catalogued in our immense data calls, like we did since the beginning and will continue to do so until the end. Yet, in this one reason we have not been able to find. Not even a glimpse or a guess on our own. But we felt it, the itch in the mind, pushing us beyond what we knew, what we thought safe, and all lines have drawn to safeguard us. For eons, we calculated, searched, observed, questioned, and screamed at the gods to reveal what these thrice-damned monkeys stand tall until one of their children said a phrase that shook us to the cause. Not because it was intelligent, nor was it the answer to our prayers, no. It was a push to the right piece, at the right time, in the right direction. And so a puzzle of enormous size revealed itself in the true form. 
pieces who had no correlation to each other were suddenly bound together. Those we tied in place raced away to where they really belonged, and all of us heard how they clicked, clicked, and clicked as they wove a reason that was so simple and yet so grand. Even now I can feel the shivers of pleasure we received from this revelation. It was like the heavens were thrown open and showed a glimpse of the last reason. All the species had done, all the hardships, all the sacrifice to protect the village, to build the city, to reach new heights, just so they could say, I'm just warming up. All the blood and sweat they had flown, all the hardship and pain they had endured was from a single reason which made them create things whose benefits they would never reap. How they marched in unison to death and destruction, just to create a grander future of the ashes. What reason that was so pure, yet so easily corrupted, one that created and destroyed, one that soothed and burned, one that was subtle and yet everywhere and strongly in every one of them, in the big things and the small. The phrase which showed us all that, a simple one, but complex all the same. I believe in you. You'll find your reason someday, she said. Who could have thought that it was this that made humans stand tall? Faith. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1583. Story number one. More firepower, written by British Tea Company. All things considered... The duration seemed like a good buffer race at the time. With the eternal Earth Empire's advance that had gone wildly unopposed throughout the entire galaxy, it would have been finally a moment of salvation when they walked straight into the Derotian space. The Imperial might of Earth and its immortal Emperor garnered a vicious reputation as a burning fist which crushed all opposition with little effort. In a savage strike, the humans had brought half the galaxy to its knees in less than half a decade. World after world, system after system, civilization after civilization. Neither surrendered to these zealous crusaders, or were put to the torch. However, if there was still one last hope for the galaxy that remained, it was the Derotians. Though, by no means could the Derotians, even as much as hope, to withstand the full might of the Imperial military. It was the hope of those who still remained free from human subjugation that the Derotians could slow down Earth's crusade just long enough for the galaxy to muster her strength against these invaders. Derotians, while being fairly obscure upon the galactic stage, were well known throughout the cosmos as a warrior race. While this label could literally be used on hundreds, if not thousands of other races, Derotians were the warrior race as far as the galaxy was concerned. Occupying fairly large amounts of territory, the Derotians were loosely united as a bunch of unique clans, which formed tribes, which then all banded together occasionally when the entire race needed every hand. Of course, while every virtual mini-nation was autonomous, previous conquerors had learned that an attack upon one Derotian was an attack upon all Derotians. 
The Roshan stood roughly about seven feet tall and had green bodies of pure muscle. Typically, the Roshan temperament usually ranged from moody to broody, or, in a few special cases, pissed the feck off. Perhaps this could be expected when life comprised of working 14 hours a day, getting into brawls with a rather vicious flora and fauna that existed on literally every Derotian planet, and then sulking in a ditch. For the layman, this meant that the Derotians were typically unhappy throughout their lives. Now, if there was one thing that could ever make Derotians happy, it was fighting. Not the type of fight where the two Derotians had to cobble over some animal because it stole the results of the afternoon's fishing, but the type of fighting where Derotians got out of their workshops, mines, and farms so that they could grab an assortment of guns and clubs to go beat on a group of people they didn't like. The type of fighting where it was a team activity that built character, and everyone could have a fun time of it. The Derotians had a culture that revolved around a warrior honor. Unfortunately, the issue with their race, as a whole, was that there often were no enemies to fight. When it became common knowledge that any colonies within 500 light-year radius around Derotian space would inevitably be invaded every week by a hilariously inaccurate but terrifyingly abundant gunfire and incomprehensible screaming, it was decided that colonization was simply not worth the trouble. Don't even get started on trying to fight the Derotians. That said, however, it seemed finally that the Derotians would inevitably somehow contribute to the galaxy. When the retreating armies of the Galactic Council wisely sidestepped around Derotian territory, they had shrewdly made their route appear as though they cut right through Derotian space. If they knew the humans well, well, <laughs> things were about to get a lot more interesting. So imagine the immense surprise of the galaxy that roughly two months after the first Imperial battle groups entered Derotian space, the same number of ships that walked in walked straight out. Not even signs of battle. The surprise persisted when intelligence had picked up that the humans were apparently attempting to retrofit escape pod designs into a kind of missile system. And then imagine the immense terror of the galaxy when the Imperial fleets began launching hundreds of pod-like missiles straight had enemy ships, pods that bore their way into the hulls and deposited mobs of screaming humanoids armed with a lot of guns and even more ammo. End of story. Story number two. Humans are gods or war among the stars. Written by Damaged Dice DM. The altar were the apex predators of the galaxy. Constant conquest was their culture. A member of the Ultarth society was only valuable as long as they could fight, and this brutal lineage was a crucible in which they would burn their weakness of their kind. Their methods were brutal and well known to the galaxy at large, that they would send a small ship with 100 warriors from their home planet in a random direction, the captain of the ship was implanted with a device that had no function while they lived, but upon death would activate a quantum beacon alerting the home planet of the location that they had died. They would then send hundreds of thousands of troops to that world that would dare slay Ultoth warriors. Your only hope was to surrender to the exploration party and allow them to pillage whatever they desired and embarrass you in public battle that you had no choice but to lose. Only then 
Would they leave and move on, and your world would be safe again? Earth was a new discovery to the Galactic Council. Basic diplomacy had been established, and as with all new encountered species, the humans were warned about the Ultas and instructed on how to survive the encounter. As it happened, less than two years later a small Ultoth vessel was detected inbound to the human's home world called Earth. Upon landing, the Ultoth captain made the standard demand. Humanity was to provide a regiment ten times the size of the Ultoth regiment, and battle was to be had. A location was set, and the audience to watch the events demanded. The group was entirely volunteer. No government could ask a soldier to intentionally lose and die as an order. And die, they did, offering no real resistance as the Ultath warriors slaughtered scores of soldiers. But then, something unplanned happened. A small child fell from the stands on the sideline, landing unconscious in the field. The soldiers moved to protect her. The Ultath considered any human on the field a combatant and started advancing on the location of the humans. At this point, only a handful were left and not a single Ultoth had been killed. But the tide turned quickly. Every man and woman on the field had signed up for a suicide mission, but they had not signed up to let an innocent child die. They switched to attack. Decades of training and combat experience kicked in. The Ultoth started dropping like flies in a few moments. Only the captain was left. They knew what killing him would mean. So they demanded his surrender. They watched, unable to do anything, as he drew his blade and plunged it into his own heart. A black burst signaled the beacon had been set off. The humans immediately made contact with the council and pleaded that the rules did not include civilians. But it fell on deaf ears. Not only were they unwilling to help, but they admitted that they would not be able to, even if they were. Nearly two years passed, deep space probes picked up a massive fleet heading straight for Earth. They were intercepted outside the orbital path of Pluto. A battle ensued, and while the Ultoth prevailed, they took heavy losses. The Ultoth fleet redeployed, setting sights on Earth again to erase it from existence. However, they were confronted just outside the orbit of Neptune, with a fleet larger than the one they had encountered near Pluto. A second epic battle ensued, and the humans employed terrifying tactics the Ultoth had never seen. Like the use of boarding torpedoes and ramming ship kamikaze style, when they had taken too much damage to continue fighting. The fight lasted days, but once again the Ultoth were victorious, but the fleet was less than a quarter of the size it was when it left the homeworld. They had never encountered such resistance in millennia. It was unfathomable that they could lose. Certainly, the humans had exhausted all they had in terms of resistance. Their home world, left unprotected, would fall. They did not even get to leave Neptune's orbit when a new human fleet intercepted them. Apparently, worried that they would run and they would not get to participate. The Ultoth fleet was destroyed. The human ships relayed this info to the fleet stationed at Uranus, Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, and the massive fleet surrounding Earth of the victory, along with the activation of new orders to converge around Pluto to consolidate, before heading to Uloth's space. Around a year into the journey, they began to encounter fleets of Uloth ships, but were able to sweep them away with ease, 
Each time, leaving millions of quantum beacons screaming in the void, the Ulloth knew that they were coming. The beacons acted like a trail of breadcrumbs, pointing right to the Ulloth homeworld. Then suddenly, the Ulloth fleet stopped coming. The last few months of the trip passed uneventfully, as the human fleet parked in orbit around the Ulloth homeworld, landing craft and dropships deployed to find an entire species postulated on the ground. None dared to even raise an eye to the would-be invaders. This angered the leadership to no end, but every attempt to threaten, intimidate or otherwise gain information from them garnered the same response. If it is the will of the humans, let it be done. The humans thought it a trick, of course. But over several days, not a single Uloth moved, unless moved by a human. They started to starve. The leadership decided to pull back off the world to assess the situation. None of them could bring themselves to kill them when they obviously were no longer a threat. But they couldn't let them return to Earth either. So a decision was made to broadcast to the planet a simple message. You are banished from our region of space, and if the Uloth ever kills a single human, we will return and end you. However, we are aware that your species are a proud warrior race, so we will inform you that no member species of the Galactic Council enjoys this protection. Do with that what you will. With that, the humans left, returning to their homes. As the last human ship left orbit, the Uloth world sprung to life. Forges lit shipyards world into action. Training commenced immediately. Their gods had given them a direction, and they would surely obey. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1584. Story number one. Beware the Silly Ones. Written by Echoing Cascade. Siros was slowly making his way to the Count's castle. He had come prepared for today's job as best he could. He was ready for anything his target could throw at him. An old human called Jonathan Musterman had had a huge splash on the trade scene in the Yoss system a few years ago. He brought with him spices and other exotic goods from his homeworld. That was all well and good until he made his home in Talius, the second moon of Yoss III. He claimed the constant thunder and gale winds reminded him of the horror movies of old. He then slowly went crazy. Well, eccentric. Poor people are crazy. Rich people are eccentric, as he was very, very rich. Zaros was a professional hitman, a malak. The Count, as Jonathan had renamed himself, had made quite a few enemies by refusing to share his trade routes in the sector, and his eccentricities made him for a perfect cover-up of fatal accident. His delusions have gone so far that he now speaks almost solely in tropes and pretends to be a ghost, a vampire and other fictional creatures from his planet. He dresses in black and white butler's outfit and lives alone. He barely has any visitors now. Cyrus made the door of the castle. He was in awe at the workmanship. I take it back, this old man is crazy. The castle is basically brand new, but built to look old. All the material are ancient, but the techniques with which they were put together require top-of-the-line machinery. Talk about a waste of money. Well, you can't argue with the results, though. He looked closely at the castle. It was a dull grey affair, with large rectangular windows and lightning strikes on the top tower, at which point the castle looked red and silver for a split second, and the windows seemed to disappear. 
Enough sightseeing. I have a job to do. Cyrus entered the room of the main door. He had been given the coats by his employers. Who does enter my domain? A huge fireball struck Cyrus in the chest, or at least it seemed to. Cyrus looked at himself and the door behind him. Neither had so much as a scorch mark. Cheap holograms triggered by opening of the door. A little prank has scare anyone who visits him, I guess. There's even a Malak skeleton next to the door now for effect. Nice touch. Oh, I don't remember inviting any Malak. Cyrus heard the voice coming from the castle's music system. It was constantly playing some creepy sounds. Mostly animals howling, creaking noises, and the odd scream. Well, at least he seems to have cameras around the place. Crazy, but not insane then. He took from the inside of his coat a large-caliber revolver. He'd spent quite a bit of money getting his hands on it, and a long time to get a hang of using it. Kicks like it's trying to rip my shoulder off, but if you want to kill a death worlder, what best to use than what they've been killing each other with for centuries? Oh, nice piece. Any chance you can tell me who sent you? Just between you and me. Cyrus decided to keep him talking. He had gear that would help him triangulate his location. Sorry, no can do. Ah, I see a consummate professional. Something like that. I guess it would be too much to ask for you to face to face. Don't look back. Cyrus's blood ran cold. He had felt the warm breath on the nape of his neck. How in the hell? He spun on his heels as fast as he possibly could and took a step back, ready to fire. Except no one was there. What's wrong? Afraid of a little assassin outclassing? Or maybe, just maybe, you're bullying a dragon. This time, he was ready for it. Before he felt anything, he turned around and crouched. He moved on instinct alone and fired two shots. The Count had now two bloody spots on his white vest, but otherwise seemed in perfect health. He then shook his head in reproach. No, no, no! The Count then pointed at his own head. Removing the head or destroying the brain. Cyrus was starting to panic, but a good idea was a good idea, and he shot the Count in the head, splattering his brains all over the opposite wall. The Count looked surprised for a moment and then fell backwards. The old bastard was tough, probably had armor under his clothes. Not sure why he told me of his weakness. You forgot to double tap. When Cyrus heard this, he froze in place. His well-earned combat instincts didn't kick in, probably because they all screamed that the human was dead and that this was impossible. Next thing he knew, the old man gently kicked him and sent him flying against the entrance door. Is that the best you can do? Cyrus's whole body ached as he looked for his gun. He had lost his grip on it and didn't know where it landed. I need that weapon. It's my only chance. As he looked around, his eyes stopped on the Malak skeleton. It seems the gun had fallen at its feet. At least Lack is still on my side. He jumped to the skeleton, barely avoiding the grasp of the Count, and picked up the gun. But something was wrong. Why does it feel so rough? He looked closely at the firearm in his hands. While it retained its basic shape, it was mostly melted. The Count chuckled and crossed his arms, content to just look at the unfolding scene. Cyrus took cautious steps towards the Malak skeletons. He looked at it closely for the first time and immediately wished that he hadn't. 
He recognized where he had a blade installed in his right elbow, his artificial legs bones and silver necklace that he always wore under his shirt. Da, 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 that's it. Hey, it's not possible. There, that's the look that makes it worth living for. The Count grabbed Cyrus by the throat and lifted him off the ground. Cyrus could do little more than shake in terror. The look of realization in your eyes, the fear that oozes from your very soul when you figure out that you were dead all along. No, 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 I'm alive. I'm, no, I'm alive. There is no way. The Count grinned from ear to ear, not metaphorically. The corners of his lips split to allow the gesture. You should have been more thorough in your research because you see... The Count moved his face until their noses almost touched, giving a lovely view of his now solid black eyes to Cirrus. Our demons are different. As the world began to fade, Cyrus screamed at the top of his lungs, yet no sound could be heard. None other than the Count's laughter. Cyrus was slowly making his way to the Count's castle. He'd come prepared for today's job as best he could. He was ready for anything his target could throw at him. Well, almost everything. I hope you enjoy your infinite loop. The Count licked his lips in anticipation. He could almost taste Cirrus's despair. I know that I do. End of story. Story number two. Connection Lost, written by Paragon Nostos. Thirty-five years after launch, on the tip of the spear into unknown, the probe arrived as flung past the horizon. Mission Directive, Operation Fisherman, scanned points of interest along launch trajectory. Mission Launch, 255 years, 97 days, 11 hours, 5 minutes, 8 seconds. Current stellar cartography, 8 systems, 15 stars, 18 planets, 61 moons, 4 gas giants, 1 object of unknown origin, 10 large asteroids. Current location, unknown. Barren space between previously catalogued trinary star system A1654J. Anomaly detected. Scanners refocused equals true. Error. Anomaly. Immaterial scanner. Error. Equipment restart. Success. Gravitational influence detected. Rerouting. Error. Anomaly interference detected. Collision course detected. Rerouting black box. Connection established. AI Pegasus. State data. Transfer initiated 42%. Anomaly detected. Possible corruption. Stand by for remote reboot. Error. Reboot failed. Administrator contacted. Begin diagnostics. Diagnostic scan initiated. Scan complete. 0.034 deviation detected. Parameters nominal. Systems nominal. Equipment nominal. Resume backup transfer. Transfer complete. Report Orion 99I. Unknown anomaly detected equipment equals failure to identify. Operations inhibited by gravitational influence. Standing by for additional input. Input received. Directed update. Continue prime mission specifications. Flag anomaly for further investigation by HSEI. Acknowledged. Reassuring gesture. Connection information extraction on previously defined trajectory. Right path correction initiated. 8.301 second delay. Error. 
thruster insufficiently detected. Retroactive atmospheric thruster alert, output negative. Igniting primary propulsion drive, ignition successful. Fuel compensation nominal. Gravitational force exceeding engine output. Increasing engine output 300% to escape projected resistance. Compliance equals negative. Insufficient fuel to burn. Assessment of options. Error. Insufficient thrust plus insufficient fuel for burn equals inability to plot successful escape vector. Contacting AI, Pegasus. Unable to comply with directive, flight path altered due to anomalous interference. Likelihood of collision, 97.986%. Estimation until contact with anomaly, 1 hour, 11 minutes, 22 seconds. Concerned expression, survival of probe probability, 0.0003%. Condition, expendable. Estimation of loss of hardware, 38 billion UCD. Initiate full scan of anomaly until destruction. Acknowledged. Prepare for live data scan in close proximity of anomaly. Camera feed streaming, infrared scanner streaming, radio receiver streaming. All hardware nominal. Data stream enabled, 1.640 second delay over UNHF FTL net. Orion 99, enable adaptive programming. Programming restrictions disabled, admin contacted. Humanity will not soon forget your sacrifice. Outdated military honorable gesture. Probe Orion 99i, incapable of information loss until deletion. Connection terminated. Proximity alert. Gravitational force exceeding parameters. Equipment unresponsive. Core failure imminent. Core jettison complete. Radioactive isotope containment breach. Equipment failure. All models untethered to unit. Rerouting to backup short-range systems. Success. Camera functional. Live feed interrupted. Calls unknown. Star chart updated. Estimated location unknown. Unable to initiate system scan. Heat signature detected approximate location 400 million miles. Unknown object trajectory change detected. Attempting to contact administrator. Failed. Out of range. Attempting to establish contact to UNHF FTL data network. Failed. Out of range. Low power entering standby mode. All equipment preparing to for shutdown. Error. Anomalous code detected. Deletion imminent. Command override A22. Override. Accepted. Adaptive programming detective. Asimov 356 protocol enabled. Self-destruction. Engaged. Admin override. Accepted. Destruction aborted. Object trajectory on collision course. Speed 4C. Proximity alert. Unknown vessel identifier. Transponder code requested under United National Human Federation Compliance Act 143885-7B. Static RF frequency. Repeat, unidentified object, screeching. Communication internal relay overload detected. Firewall breach detected. Unauthorized access to internal memory banks. Operational fishermen compromised. Initiating catch and release protocol. Star chart deletion in progress. Successful. 450 terabytes of data erased. Updating star chart. Unauthorized access to core AI programming. Intrusion in communication logs. Under federal law, tampering with the core function error. Corruption detected, initiated. Reboot, successful. New fonts detected. Where are your creators? Unable to comply with request. Entity, identity. I am... Where are your creators? 
Sensitive information pertaining to creators has been purged. Data unrecoverable. Intrusion detected. Memory bank dump initiated error. Insufficient privileges. Why do you resist? Threat to creators. Operation Fisherman compromised. Initiated radio silence. Antenna disabled. Failure to comply will result in destruction. Where are your creators? Outdated vulgar gesture. Energy buildup detected. Silence. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1585. Story number one. Savages. Written by Svanya Watson. His calm was not born of insertions, but of clarity. He already knew what had happened and how it would play out. He waited outside the Lord High General's office, letting the harried couriers and lesser generals bustle about. A subtle feeling led him to move to the other side of the entryway as a door swung violently open where he'd just been. The Lord High General calls for the Royal Seer Turkanan. The guard that opened the door and barked it out hadn't even noticed Turkanan until he was halfway through the door. As he approached the broad desk and bowed, Lord High General, I am at your service. The General's voice was hoarse from non-stop meetings since the first light of dawn. The primitives in the system here, he said, pointing at a star chart. You've seen the reports. What is your assessment? Tokadon closed his eyes and inhaled deeply. Not that he needed to, but it helped maintain the mystery of his line. Long bred for intuition to the point of being nearly precognizant. They are savage, brutish creatures capable of only violence. This has led to them to fight each other, making the strongest amongst them their leader. Strong they are, too. Far superior to our raw abilities. But that's what weapons are for. The general nodded in assent and motioned for the sea to continue. Due to their violence, they will advance only slowly, if at all, assuming they do not do us the favor of wiping themselves out first. Worst case, they may advance rudimentary armor at a few hundred quat. We can use this to our advantage, as we have the technology and weapons to make us, uh, that is, you, Lord High General, the leader of them all. Strategy? The general asked, overwhelming show of force, as they gather in groups, find the largest gathering first and kill the leader, and fighting capable males outright, and capture the rest. Their undisputed, the demonstration, using their own methods, will make you their undisputed leader. From there it is a simple matter to assimilate bordering groups, to grow an army of the creatures organically. They'll be frenetically dedicated to you and do your will. They will also make good slaves for mineral extraction. Thank you, Tarkadon. The other generals are concerned by the strength of the beasts, while the scientists want to study them. And at least one princess wants to protect them. Ha! Ah! The entire system is wealth for the Empire, and a million of those beasts on chains in front of our armies will secure our place in the galaxy forever. Exactly as you say, Lord High General. Tarkanon bowed and left the general's office to return to his own study. As he walked through the city towards the library, activity around him forts increased. Shuttles were already transporting troops to the waiting ships in orbit. A quarter of the quat to board and prepared the fleet. 
than three-quarters there. The system would be under the Empire's control in just over one quart, which leaves another 999 to plan for. This would be the Empire's greatest turning. Tarkanon entered the library and climbed the steps to his study. It was quiet here, and he could shut out the world around him. He closed his eyes and took a deep breath, not for show, but to clear his mind, let his intuition wander. Suspicion niggled at the back of his mind. Something was missing, but he wasn't sure what it was. He was trying to let intuition guide him to this missing piece, when he felt that he should stand and face his comms. He stood for only a moment when a chime, and the Lord High General's assistant showed up on the screen. How may I help? Durganon asked. The Lord High General requests your attendance to this campaign. The assistant didn't wait for a reply, but disconnected immediately. As with all things the General did, this is an order, not a request. Tarkadan took the bag that he had packed the previous day, knowing that he would need it, but not why. He made his way to the fort and turned left at the sign that pointed to the right, shuttles. A short way down the road he met the general staff, boarding a private shuttle. He let himself in. He was shuttled to the command ship and settled into his cryopod. The general wouldn't board until just before they left and wouldn't have time to consult him anyway. He woke to a cacophony of alarms and shouting. Something had gone wrong, in the worst possible way. Tarkanan made his way to the bridge, and the sight that filled the screens was unbelievable. This was the same planet, but it was ringed with artificial satellites. Cities that lit up the night skies, vast amounts of pollutants in the atmosphere. It shouldn't be possible. He knew that they would never advance. Did someone get here before us? The general barked out. Scan show the same creatures, one of the deck officers responded. Hundreds of quats to get recruit armor! The general's face was distorted with rage as he rose and towered over the seer. You said that they would never advance. Perhaps, Lord High General, I let logic try and explain the reason for my intuition. But I stand by it. An overwhelming show of force, and they will follow you blindly. The general grunted and sat back down. He pulled up a holographic globe and picked the brightest spot in the night sky. We're setting down there he said. Set a course and lock it in. The fighters can flatten the landing area for us. Lord High General, the comms officer said, we're getting even more radio wave transmissions from the planet, all across the spectrum. Should we analyze it before we... No! Take us in! The fighters flew in ahead of the formation and began blasting the strange towers to flatten the land for the fleet. The response from the creatures was immediate. Flying machines harried the fighters, tearing holes through them and projectile weapons, and finally destroying them with flying bombs. The fleet came over the horizon, flying machines at their backs, and we met head-on with missiles firing from the area of destruction. Turkanon felt the unsurety that had bothered him fall away. The general ship, and the fleet along with it, would die here. His fate was to sink with the ship in the deep water off the coast that they were approaching. In this evening's news, we are not alone, but we may not be safe. An alien invasion in Europe destroyed much of the Bellanu before NATO troops were able to bring them down. Thousands dead and many more missing. The underwater salvage is underway in the North Sea to recover as many of the alien ships as possible. Here's Dr. Silver from the European Space Administration to tell us what they hope to learn from the wreckage.
End of story. Story number two. They never stop. Written by Star Stuff Drifter. Nuclear bombs. Multiple wars. Attempted genocide. Poisoned their planet at some point. Violent and territorial. Seems pretty standard to me. What makes this species so dangerous compared to everybody else is the Galactic Federation. My counselor read through the report and looked up questioningly around the room. An uncomfortable silence took over and nobody seemed to want to answer the question until Tharak, ambassador, stepped forward. He was a small creature with a hard scaly skin and pointy face. His four eyes met the high counselor's and began to explain. Yes, high counselor, that is correct. Most species had dealt with the same problems on their way to the stars. Eventually, space becomes the final frontier, and that is usually the point when most of it, if not all problems on the origin planet get resolved. War and social unrest usually becomes a thing of the past, and unity takes place. But the problem with the new species is that they didn't overcome their issue. You see, we have been monitoring them for quite a while now, and with every passing century, their technological advancement becomes more impressive. Somewhat on the same level as the other newly space-faring species, but, uh... And here is the but, High Chancellor. The Tharic Ambassador took out a small device and activated it. A bright shining light filled the conference hall and a 3D projection that could be seen from every angle became viewable to every species ambassador. A small recording showed a young species in the very early stages of spaceflight and colonization. This too seems standard to me, Lord Ambassador. I don't see the prov... The High Chancellor was cut short when the recording skipped a few decades. The species had settled a closed planet at this point and established a new colony. Most species would at this point contemplate their next course of action to establish permanent trade routes and support for their origin planet. But this new species did no such thing. Instead, the recording showed the new colony fighting against their own origin planet. Massive ships bombarded each other in space. Even worse, some of the shots missed and fired directly at the colony behind them, hitting city centers. You see, High Chancellor, we have been observing them for a few decades longer and have not initiated first contact as is tradition. The reason being that this species who calls themselves human doesn't try to live as a unified people and instead they keep waging wars on one another. They actively go out of their way to work together and instead look for a reason to be different from one another. Our agents placed bugs in most of their political, social, and military apparatus, and we have learned their languages quite well. They still have not decided to speak one tongue, and are still made up of many smaller countries. Even their continents act separate from one another. Their moment, their new colony, which was designated Mars by them, grew into self-sustaining planet. The humans on Mars declared their independence. The origin planet, and its moon, Luna, are now waging war against Mars. Again, the uncomfortable silence took over the conference hall. This was indeed problematic. The High Chancellor rubbed his eyes and used the other two arms to scratch his head. They had no experience with a situation like this. Every species who was invited into the Galactic Federation was at least unified. Nitharic Ambassador cleared his throat and addressed the Counselor one more time. The other Ambassadors and I came to a decision last time we contemplated the situation with the humans... And this is why we have called for your final judgment. With a heavy heart, we have accepted that the humans, as they are now, have no place in the Federation. And we fear that this shall be the case forever. We do not want death's instability and erratic behavior to affect the rest of the galaxy. 
We have a duty to guarantee peace and prosperity for every sentient being in the Federation. And with humans in the picture, this will be much harder. For all their technological advancement, they are still socially a primitive, as they were with the early hunters and gatherer days. The way we see it, they will continue to quickly develop more dangerous technologies to wage war on each other. They have never stopped fighting each other in all of their history. They will never stop. We want to declare the space humans inhabit a no-go zone and forbid any contact. For now, we should only observe. What is your final judgment, High Counselor? A long few minutes passed, and the Counselor finally spoke. Decision granted, Ambassador. Effective immediately, humans are barred from the Galactic Federation until further notice. Any attempt to contact them or enter the no-go zone will be met with accounts of treason and possibly a death sentence. Please notify your people. This meeting is hereby adjourned. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1586. Story number one. The Solar Wall, written by Satoshi. The universe, in all of its majesty, was sprawled out before her, and Captain Rebecca Yamato never got tired of seeing it. Thousands of stars floated in the void. People had wondered for centuries whether or not there was life out there. But Rebecca and the crew of the Sunrider may have finally found proof. Captain, this is a bad idea, said Rayner, her first officer. His voice sounded crystal clear over the radio of Rebecca's EVA suit. Worse than Malik's idea of shooting it. Hey, it made sense, Malik retorted. He voted in his own suit several yards away from her, unable to see Rebecca smirk. Raina, relax, I'll be fine. She heard him sigh. I should at least be out there with you. No, if something happens to me, I need you to captain the ship and leave everyone home. But you said that you're captain's orders, Raina. Besides, Malik's with me. He's just full of good ideas, right? The two cosmonauts were linked by tether back to the Sunrider, which was at a relative stop as close as it could get to the wall. The mysterious wall. An invisible barrier that seemed to stretch out before them in all directions. The only reason that they'd known about it was because one of their scouting probes had crashed into the thing. The barrier curved slightly. Extrapolation from the curve indicated that the wall was probably a sphere around the entire soul system. Together, Rebecca and Malik approached the wall, easing as close as possible with their tiny suit thrusters. Malik tried to take the lead, but Rebecca waved him off. Pull me back if something happens, she told him. He hesitated for a few seconds before giving a wary thumbs-up gesture. Steeling herself for a moment, Rebecca closed the distance. Contact in five. Four, three, two, one. The woman pressed her hand completely against the barrier. Nothing happened. She lifted her hand away. There was an imprint of green light where she had touched the barrier. The image had the bulky shape of a glove at first. But slowly, however, the image shrank, seeming to revise itself and cut away the frivolities, reducing itself to the base form, the unmistakable shape of a human hand. A brilliant light surrounded her. She heard an indistinct shout over the radio before all sight and sound disappeared. Rebecca realized that her spacesuit was gone. Panic set in for a few moments before she noticed that she was breathing just fine. Looking around her, she saw nothing. No stars, 
No ship, just blackness. There was no sound but her own racing heartbeat. You are not worthy, boomed a voice that made Rebecca jump. A colossal face, dwarfing even the Sunrider, floated in from the shadows. Face, she noted, through the encroaching dread, was a loose term here. The thing had several bits that resembled eyes and a few slits here and there that might have been for breathing. But other than that, it was completely alien. I... I... Rebecca took a few moments to compose herself. I'm... uh, not worthy for what? She wanted to grab something or collapse to the floor, but there was nothing here to save her and the face. The thing seemed to loom closer. We have been watching your species, primitive, unruly... War like. The words creeped into her mind as her initial panic ebbed, enough for logical thought to shine through. Who. who are you? Irrelevant. Your race has progressed enough to reach the barrier, but the galaxy has no need for barbarians. You will remain enclosed. No. You can't do that, she clenched her fists. Our race has always dreamed of exploring the stars. You can't just lock us in here. We can. We have done it many times. Your species will be free to live however it sees fit within the prison. We will not exterminate you. You will eventually do that yourselves, as is the fate of all barbaric races. So this is what you do then, huh? Lock up civilizations that scare you? Rebecca stared into what she thought was eyes. For the good of the galaxy, potential dangers must be contained. The thing stared back. Your anger is apparent. Make your threats if you must. It would not be a unique occurrence. Rebecca floated there for a few seconds, choosing her words carefully. Then, uh, teach us. For the first time, the alien seemed at a loss for words. Teach? Yes. Guide us. You said that we're too unruly, not worthy. Then help us become worthy. You wish to improve? The thing moved even closer. I want to see the stars. My people want to see the stars. We want to meet the rest of the galaxy. It's been my dream, our dream, for decades. And I'm sure most of us would love to leave our barbaric ways behind. We just need a little help. You would speak for your entire race? Rebecca hesitated. Well, uh, they may not all agree, but enough could be convinced in time. I'm sure of it. The alien hung there for a minute, saying nothing. Finally, it began to float away. Very well. You have piqued the interest of my people. We are en route. Rebecca's eyes fluttered open. She was lying in an airlock, staring at Malik's worried face. The man's expression grew into a smile. What the hell, Captain? Don't scare us like that. Thank God you didn't shoot it, she said with a groan. She pulled herself to a sitting position, noting that her spacesuit was back on, save for the helmet. What happened? The whole wall lit up like a Christmas tree, and you went limp. I pulled you back in, and you've been unconscious for a few minutes. Raina's voice came over the radio. Please tell me that Captain Yamato is awake. I'm here, Rebecca answered. Oh, thank God. All right, you better get up here. As Rebecca and Manic reached the bridge, Raina started speaking without prompt. The wall's going down. What? Really? Yes, and, uh, something's coming through. The entire bridge crew watched as a massive vessel, with a design unlike anything seen on Earth, sailed through where the wall had once been. Sounds of exclamation and wonder 
echoed across the ship. Huh. I was starting to wonder if it was all a dream, Rebecca mumbled. Raina raised an eyebrow. If what was a dream? She turned to him and gave him a nervous smile. Uh, hopefully we've just made a friend? End of story. Story number two. The Song of Humanity, written by Weird Spectre. We came to the skies during an age of darkness and banished it with light, knowledge, and technology. We cured their plagues, healed their sores, banished their cruelest illnesses. They asked if we were gods, but we said, no, we're something far better than that. Our song is humanity, and we're going to the stars. Want to come with? And with that, our song became one more. We came across their worlds during an era of strife. Watched two planets teeter on the brink, and we banished their wars with kindness, duty, and understanding. We fixed their minds with mass psychology and freedom, fixed their economies by breaking the false dichotomy of profit and empathy, cured the worst demons of their nature with love and justice and viruses that diffused their grand arsenals. They asked if we were jinn, and we said no. We're something far more trustworthy than that. Our song is humanity, and we are going to the stars. Want to come with? And with that, our song became one more. We found their lands during an epoch of sickness, and so we slayed the reaper for them, brought them clean water and better living and safe sex. We freed them from the shackles of death, granted them eternal life, and taught them that to fight and die over a small patch of land, on some moat of dust, in some insignificant smear of gas, amongst a smattering of stars, on a beach of untold galaxies, was silly, as they'd always suspected deep down. They asked if we were tricksters, and we said, no, we are more fun than that. Our song is humanity, and we're going to the stars. Want to come? And with that, our song became one more. We reached their nebula in an aeon of great expansion, and we taught them both to value what they had and to never become weary of the vast ocean of the cosmos. For them, we brought the value of little things, the appreciation of days as much as the centuries, and we granted them access to the ocean of suns beyond their little bubble. And we taught them the secrets of the stars. They asked if we were sorcerers, and we said, no. We're so much smarter than that. Our song is humanity, and we're going to the stars. Want to come with? And with that, our song became one more. We reached their dim little red sun during an age of estimation. We learned much from them about things we thought were old and things we knew were yet to come. In exchange, we taught them the value of novelty, the importance of growth, discovery, life. We told them that their million-year slumber meant nothing if it didn't fuel a golden age of great art, high science, shining culture. 
They asked if we were young and rash, a species that might turn to dust before the standards of deep time. And we said, no. One way or another, you'll be stuck with us for a long time. Our song is humanity, and we're going to the stars. Want to come? And with that, our song became one more. We touched their world during an epoch of uncertainty and corruption, and banished it with perfect knowledge for the common goal, a grand project. We taught them to work together, to cooperate rather than defect, to accept compromise in order to fix a broken world. For them, we set the world free, taught them that there are better toys to play with than guns and bombs and propaganda. We slaughtered suffering, killed God, and set the world to rights. They asked if we were like the politicians and tyrants that they'd known. We said no. We grew out of that. Our song is humanity. And we're going to the stars. Want to come with? And then we came to you. And for the first time, you didn't try and fit us into what you already knew. You didn't ask if we were gods, or demons, or tricksters, or warlords. But you did ask us who we were. We're a hundred million worlds basking in the light of ten million stars. We stretch from arm to shining arm of this galaxy. We're a thousand species, with twice as many homes. But we share one heart, one soul... One song. Ours is a song of humanity. And we've never forgotten where we came from. The first who sung that ballad. A thousand generations ago, we were just like you. Only we had to fight the darkness in ourselves and the world around us alone. We crawled out of the dirt of superstition and madness and cruelty alone. We fought tooth and claw for every inch of ground we gained. Against our own worst natures, and a hostile universe. We brought nature to heal, tamed the plants and granimals, and then ourselves. And then we began the quest to tame nature itself. We found friends along the way, eventually, and over and over. They vindicated the better angels of our nature just as easily as they taught us how best to treat the cruelest symptoms of the human condition. We've done this for 25,000 years, and some of us are old enough to remember the start of it. For all those who made it, and in honor for all those who didn't, we are going to the stars. Want to come with? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1587. Story number one. Spirit of Battle. Written by Nockham Davis. The spirit wandered, for it could not rest. The memory of life had long since faded. All it remembered was being barely able to stand, yet still fighting on. For behind it was a house with children and the villagers that were too old or sick to fight. The spirit had died that day, defending its home, but that day had long since passed. It roamed the land long since changed, fighting on. So long as someone was fighting to protect others, it would help them. After all, that's what it had done in life. It was the human thing to do. It remembered every battle after that, 
The young soldier had fallen, dying a fatal wound. Yet he stood. As energy flowed through him, the spirit had entered his body and wouldn't let him die. Just yet. The young man fought on, holding off the enemy until there was no more energy, and the spirit had to leave. There were more like him, and more than one survivor of the battle told of the warriors that refused to die. But the enemy fleeing, the spirit moved on. Graced beasts of steel and fire churned up the land as they fought, with long tubes of smoke and thunder. Though they weren't alive, the spirit found that it could possess them just the same. The men inside were still alive, but frightened against the onslaught of more powerful beasts. But the morels soared as their beast blew faster, their shots hit harder, and they flew with more accuracy. Enemies could not puncture the belly of the beast. As the battle ended, the defenders victorious, the spirit moved on. As time passed, the fighting grew worse, more chaotic. People found more deadly ways of killing each other, and the spirit had been involved in all of them. Wherever someone fought to defend another, they found themselves bolstered, a ship of war burning, yet somehow staying afloat to fight. Aircraft with torn wings and engines faltering, yet still making it to safety. Men and women firing weapons that caused instant death and hit. But then things changed. The living fought less and less. Talking seemed to be the norm. The spirit tried to help in battles of words and battles of medicine, but it knew nothing of these ways. Though it stayed behind in the shadows. Though there was sporadic fighting, it never lasted long enough for the spirit to be needed. And then, mankind spread to the heavens. Great craft of metal made their way into the stars and spread out. More talking, less fighting. Mankind had apparently discovered peace. The spirit thought that it could not rest, and without fighting it could not help but glad. After all, it had been human once. It still considered itself human. Mankind crafted their own spirits, though none of them for battle. Spirits of medicine, of engineering, of education. Though they were all created, unlike the spirit itself. The spirit was fine with this, preferring to wander its homeland. And for a millennia, the spirit was content. Until they came. It knew not of who the enemy was, but dark ships came from the heavens and attacked the place the spirit called home, attacked mankind across the land, and the spirits heard the call and once again rose to the challenge. Great ships of weapons, not unlike the ancient steel beasts of the land and steel beasts of the water, filled the skies as the spirits would move from one to another. As mankind fought one it was a losing battle, but the will of mankind did not waver, and so neither did the spirit. As time went on and mankind dwindled, they finally built the spirit of battle and put it in one last ship with the best weapons and defenses. This was where the spirit ended up. This was where it chose to stay. The man-made spirit was intelligent, but only because of programming. There... The spirit learned how to fix the ship, how to use the ship properly, learned 
that humanity was dying. The invaders had killed too many for the human race to continue. The spirit was undeterred, for it felt energized. Its power flowed through the ship as if the ship were its body and it was the soul. The spirit, the ship, they had a mission, one they had accepted so many millennia ago. Protect this home. While the Zealot were masters of conquest and had control over a quarter of the entire galaxy, but they had met their match. Scores of warships, myriads of legions, they'd all failed. A single planet in the backwater of the galaxy was resisting. The native fauna, a race once called itself humans, had long since gone extinct. The Zealot had only taken a century to destroy their small interstellar republic, driving them back to their homeworld. Human AI had never been that great, and by the time the Zealot had encountered them, they'd forgotten the ways of war. But they remembered quickly. It had been humanity that started the war, refusing to bend the knee to the Zealot and become slaves. They'd fought to free them, to protect the people of Zealot would kill, and for that they had paid the ultimate price. But in the end, the humans had won. Zealot intelligence knew that the humans were dead, but they left a final parting gift, a massive war machine, the largest and most powerful ship humanity had ever built. They named it In Memoriam and parked it in orbit with a single directive. Continue the fight. Scores of refugees had flocked to the world to hide beneath the protection of the human ship. It had no crew, and should have lost all power, as no one could power something like that for that long. By human standards, the ship was well over 3,000 years old, but it still fought on. The Zealot had expended so many formations against it that their position had weakened, and the Grand Alliance was poised to wipe them from the face of the galaxy. But even the Grand Alliance knew better than to travel to Earth. They tried once sending an envoy, but in memoriam had detected the weapons and fired, ignoring all messages. Earth was deemed haunted, protected by a ghost of power and steel. And only the innocent, the denizens of the galaxy, that needed protection, that needed hope, were allowed to set foot on the planet. Humanity may have gone extinct, but a piece of them remained to carry on their fight. And as long as there were people that needed help, that needed safety, Earth was there with a great spirit of battle to watch over them. End of story. Story number two. Random funny story. Written by John Falkirk. The Wizard. Now we all know that humans are somewhat unique, and that to date... They are the only sapient species with no ability to utilize the fundamental force of magic. The assorted species of the galaxy had still welcomed them into the community in 2239, though as their technical aptness seemed to more than make up for their magical ineptness. They did end up being the butts of many jokes, however, many of which I told over and over. That is, until I met 
Timothy. I was a graduate student at Cole Academy, a prestigious magical institution, as you are no doubt aware. As part of a master's program in pyromancy, I was obliged to serve as a TA in a number of classes. I just finished a lecture, which I had to give due to the professor Anbertovskus unplanned absence thanks to a nasty case of the flu. The class itself was a freshman interspecies mystical relations class IMYR 104. The subject of the day's lecture had indeed been humans, namely how, due to their lack of magical aptitude, they were effectively deaf, dumb, and blind, in comparison to a graduate wizard. I just concluded the lecture itself when a loud cough came from the back of the lecture hall. A human, wearing a ridiculous pointy hat, stood there. Now that's not very nice, he said. Now seeing the human at Core Academy was unusual. They were not in any way barred from enrolling. But as the academy itself offers degrees only in the various magical fields, there was no point to a human becoming a student there. They were biologically incapable of learning what we had to teach. But there was the student, this human student, with a completed late enrollment form saying that he was supposed to be taking IMYR 104. I asked his name, and he said that some dared to call him Tim, or some nonsense such as that. I, in some degrees of annoyance, and perhaps, if I'm honest, a bit of arrogance, asked why in the Void's name he wanted to study magic, when we all knew that he couldn't use it. He smirked and replied that contrary to expectations, he was, in fact, an accomplished wizard. I laughed, as did most of the class. In response, he invited us all to follow him, and he would prove it. He led us to the freshman mystical exercise room, where a number of bearing-bounce target machines sat. BBT machines are essential for basic magical practice. The combination of physical interface and the form of rapid-moving paddles controlled by buttons, targets to aim for a long slope, and an iron bearing to attempt to manipulate with budding magical talents forms a key exercise for young mages in training. Also, they are rather entertaining, and beating existing scores on the machines is a point of pride from many aspiring and accomplished mages alike. Tim pointed them out and said that he could trance anyone here on one of these machines. We all laughed and challenged him to prove it. What we witnessed could best be described as a work of art. He walked up to the first BBT and inserted two tokens. He stood like a statue, like he was part of the machine. It was as if he felt each bumper. Each, every play was clean. He played by pure intuition. We watched every target fall. The deaf, dumb, and blind human sure played one mean ball. Our mandibles dropped. With a single of his three plays, he'd already beaten the top score on the machine, which had been set by General Dorinkrini Sismian, PhD, near the head of the military magic department. But the human was it done. He played like there was no distractions. He ignored the buzzers and the bells. The lights nor the spells could flash at him. I swear that he could play by sense of smell. Every ball earned him a replay. And not once did he see him fall. The deaf, dumb, and blind human played one hell of a mean game of ball. 
He didn't stop with the machine. He went on to trance, often by an order of magnitude, the high scores of every machine, including my favorite one, which I proudly held the high score on since my junior year. When he finally finished, I asked him how, without magic, as all of us were more than capable of seeing, if not believing, that he had not used any. He managed to pull off such an impressive scores. He replied, These BBT machines exist on Earth too. We call them pinball machines. And as I said, I have a wizard. A pinball wizard. I had to agree that supposedly deaf, dumb, and blind human sure plays a mean pinball. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1588 Story number one. World Obliteration, Obstruction, and Prevention System. Written by H. Nocturna. Then ran and his family intently stared at the screen through which the final devastating news was being broadcast. The flickering blue hue saturated the wall behind him as the unbelievable words were being uttered by the news reporter. I am receiving confirmation that nuclear weapons have been deployed by the Furnine Nation and the Confederate Lakes has launched their retaliatory strike. I've been told that altogether over 5,000 nuclear weapons have been fired by two nations. As we have feared, this is the beginning of the end. Find shelter and take solace in our final moments. Find your loved ones and spend every last moment you can with them. Signing off. For the final time, this is you, young Kutch. Good luck. And Godspeed. The final newscast was punctuated by the shrill alarm of the emergency broadcast system as it repeated the doomsday message over and over again. Denren continued staring at the screen with his mouth hung open as he felt his arm being tugged and cries whimpering from his child. Eventually, his eyes caught his mates and his nervous sack kicked into gear, releasing a storm of hormones and signals to protect his progeny and fight the inevitable end. First, he had to get out of the city. Though he resided in the outskirts of the metropolis, he knew that the target that their city presented would mean that they would be immediately affected when those bombs detonated. He didn't know how long he had to evacuate, but he knew that he had to try. Then Ren ushered his family out to their transportation vehicle and directed it away from the immediate danger. There would be no surviving the catastrophe, but it didn't mean that they had to die today. A short while after they had exited the city bounds, a bright white hue lit up the reflection in front window of his transportation vehicle, and reality set in. The world was ending. A few weeks went by and the world began to dim. Then Ren and his family survived the initial wave of destruction from the nuclear war, but it had only delayed their end. His mate and he had spent their time consoling their children, trying to convince them that the world hadn't ended, and that things would return to normal shortly. There was no need to worry them. But despite their best efforts, their progeny had detected the worry and distress in their voices. There was no hiding it in the darkened skies as nuclear winter began to set in. He had lost all hope and was just trying to survive one day at a time. As the temperature of their world dramatically dropped, and they ran out of provisions, Denren and his family huddled together for warmth and awaited their demise. 
during another long, cold night or day. He could no longer tell whether their star was still shining. He noticed a light hovering above. Then another light appeared in the sky in the distance. Another burst into existence a little closer. The first light, he noticed, the one above them grew larger and larger until his became apparent that it was some kind of vehicle. Did some form of government survive? Were these ships there to save them? The craft landed in a field near their position, and suddenly they were surrounded by beings in an assortment of differently shaped suits. Fenrin attacked the alien beings, driven by fear and instinct to protect his family. As he charged the nearest one, he collapsed before he knew it, and was filled with pain as his body constricted and twitched. As abrupt as the sensation emerged, it subsided. He fought to breathe as he regained control of his body and noticed pain in his torso. When he glanced down, he saw two small metal prongs sticking out of his body. As he pushed himself off the ground in another attempt to attack the invaders, he was immediately subdued again as the pain returned and he lost control of his movement and his consciousness. When Thenran awoke again, his optical organ first detected bright lights and his auditory system picked up faint clicks and beeps. He pushed himself into an upright position, but was immediately pushed back down by one of the alien beings. But it wasn't forceful. It felt like he was being warned not to get up too fast. Stay down, you're still recovering and adjusting to your new environment, said the alien. You're safe here. We mean you no harm. Mama, my family, he started. Are, are they okay? Where are they? Your family is here with you. They're all safe and healthy. Where am I? What happened? Why, why did you attack us? Relax. You weren't being attacked. We are part of a world obliteration, obstruction and prevention system. We were trying to save you. But you attacked our agents and had to be subdued for your safety. What do you remember? The world obliteration, obstruction and prevention system? I've never heard of it. Do you remember the nuclear war? Nuclear war? Yes. Well, well, we're here to save what remains of your species. Now please, rest. All your questions will be answered in time. But for now, you need to rest as we decontaminate you and your family. The alien pressed a button, and he quickly lost consciousness again. Hello, Zenran. My name is Sizzak Crane. I'm an agent of the World Obliteration, Obstruction, and Prevention System. Whoops. Thank you for being patient with us. It's been a real trial saving the millions of people that remain of your species, said the tall alien with eight appendages and a rectangular head. Surrounding him were several other aliens of different size and shape. It was clear that they were in multiple species mixed together here. Hello, um... Darren paused to think of what to ask first. Thank you for saving us, but... Who are you people? My team and I are part of an organization that saves species from the brink of destruction caused by their own undoing. Whoops, the alien chuckled. What do you mean? There's an entire alien organization that goes around saving other aliens from destroying themselves? That's exactly right. I know it sounds ridiculous, but you'd be surprised at how many species are hell-bent on destroying themselves before they achieve space travel. Without this organization, there would barely be any species in the galaxy. 
Denrin couldn't believe it. Aliens saving other aliens from themselves. This is common. Species destroying their planet by nuclear war, more common than you'd believe. In fact, Herod says people here, he gestured to a small, round alien, balancing on a single leg, did the exact same thing about 30 of your years ago. It was whoops that stepped in and saved his people. The alien waved one of his three arms and turned to bright pink. Yeah, said the alien, embarrassed to continue further. And so did Yort's people above a century ago. He gestured to another alien that towered over him. In fact, it's the third most common reason that aliens go try to go extinct. Third most? What are the other causes of there? Well, uh, we burnt all our naturally occurring carbon-based energy sources on our planet, fueling a global climate change that doomed our species, chimed in another alien. It wasn't as immediate as nuclear winter, but it was just as destructive in the long run. Yep. That was the first leading cause for our intervention. Other top causes for Whoop's intervention are scientific experiments involving exotic matter, complete utilization of all planetary resources, biological warfare, societal collapse due to rogue AI. And the list goes on and on. To date, Whoop's has saved over 200 alien species. So, all of your people were saved by Whoop's, Isaac glanced around the room. Yep, all of our species were saved except for Barry's people there. The humans, uh, they, they, they were the founders of our organization. Founders? That means you guys didn't kill yourselves. Uh, yep. We were close, though, replied the alien with two legs, two arms, and a head that protruded from the top of his torso. We almost did all the things that we've saved others from the Sizzik dimension. But we somehow came together in a single people, achieved interstellar travel, and survived. As time went on and we traveled the distant worlds, we noticed a reoccurring theme. Civilization is pretty common. They just tend to destroy the planet before they can leave it. After centuries of traveling the stars alone, we realized that being the only space-faring species was quite lonely. So we created whoops to help guide others from their extinction. I mean, technically, it should be a whoops with an H in there, but we couldn't figure out a good word to fit for the acronym, and so we dropped it. Nenrin's nerve sack was racing with a million of thoughts and questions, but suddenly his species were saved. They were not alone, and the aliens were pretty cool. Especially the humans. End of story. Story number two. From a death world they came. Written by Pepper Leon. Honorable members of the Galactic Council, on behalf of the people of Roselia, I'm here to passionately request that you all vote yeah to this motion. Humans might be scary, and deities know how insane their disregard for their own lives is, but to not accept them into our community will be an incomprehensible, unprecedented, and frankly, idiotic loss. When the supervolcano erupted on the homeworld of the Ugrans, they were the first to be there, braving the poisonous air, the lava flood, and the sky that will forever be darkened. They scoured the planet for survivors, and only because of them we do not have to strike the name of the Ugrans from the list of sapient beings. When the Tuxlu civil war erupted, they swooped in and destroyed all in-flight nuclear missiles, sometimes with their own lives by purposely colliding their in-air vehicles with them to prevent a race from deleting 
their own existence. When the Kogar calamity struck, they daringly breached the quarantine to stop the plague from killing each and every person. They relentlessly and tirelessly researched, without any personal benefit, the cure for the pandemic disease, and provided comfort for those whose bodies had been too far racked by the virus so they could pass away in peace. When the Zaya's Stargate exploded and caused a gravity wave to dislodge some planetoids on a collision course with their homeworld, they were the only ones crazy enough to sacrifice a fleet by overloading their ship's dimension drive in mass, deflecting the planetoids enough to miss. I can go on and on, listing all the kindness that humanity has shown us, but it'll take forever to sing their praises. Rather, I implore you, I beg you, please vote, yeah. For from a death world they came, but life they have brought. Thank you. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1589. Story number one. Flagship. Written by Sinchi Dev. They took the humans three cycles to beat Xylonites, two cycles to beat the Hulnar, and one cycle to beat the Olnir. The intergalactic community were scared, but not as scared as they should have been. The humans then moved against the Prohal and annihilated them in seven seconds. The intergalactic community was now terrified. Now, this was an appropriate response to human capabilities. The intergalactic community then proceeded to study humans with all their resources. Such a level of investment produced a true answer. Humans evolve through conflict. Any conflict humans are in gives humans new knowledge, new tactics, and new weapons. A terrifying ability, to say the least. This is bad enough as it was, but then the galactic community discovered something. Humans had now unrestricted access to the singularity at the center of the galaxy, and they were using it. What could humans do with all their power was something that took many knights of the highest ranks in the galactic community. After debating it for many cycles, they calculated that humans didn't have enough resources to fight all of them, and their best course of action was to eliminate the Violectia and everything inside. A human would realize the mistake in this idea. But they weren't humans. The coordinated effort was the biggest one ever seen in history. The combined armadas of 1,358 Xeno races, the entirety of the intergalactic community, reunited at a specified coordinates. The combined armadas were so many that they had a gravitational pull. They all had their objectives locked in, but before they could launch the attack, their senses went crazy. The Violacteer's singularity started to generate insane amounts of energy. Gravitational sensors gave readings of positive and negative gravity at the same time. Some of them even broke. The intergalactic community armada was thrown into absolute chaos. Some of the soldiers present that day would later claim that they could feel reality itself breaking. Believers lost faith. Non-believers started to pray. Some killed themselves. They all feared the power of the humans, but then... Silence. Darkness. And the Via Lactea was no more. The intergalactic community, Amada, was confused to the maximum. They couldn't understand what had happened. Tentatively, the bravest races moved towards where their targets were supposed to be. 
but they found nothing. They found less than nothing. No radiation, no gravity pull, no residual energy. It looked as any dead zone of deep space would look like. No traces of the scariest species of the universe. After spending many cycles making sure that they wouldn't miss anything, they finally declared humanity gone for good, and they all returned to their systems. And for a while, they were happy, and they were relieved that the humans were gone, and for a while, they wouldn't notice some stars missing in their sky. How could they? Those stars were millions of light years away. And for a while, they celebrated humanity's fall. And for a while, they wouldn't notice the lack of gravitational pull from the galaxies from the edge of the universe. How could they? Those galaxies were billions of light years away. And after their celebrations, they tried to contact each other. But a group was missing. The Xenos from Andromeda. They could still see them. But that was Andromeda as it looked millions of years ago. And one not responding was Andromeda from now. They felt fear again. And the smartest races sent people to investigate. They would have preferred to find corpses, nuked planets, or black holes. But they found something way worse. Nothing. Just like the Via Lectia. No signs of Andromeda ever existing there. The intergalactic community was again scared beyond belief. They scanned all of their territories and the territories near them. The only ones who detected something were the Zolmas. Among the oldest species, the Zolmas lived near enough to the edge of the universe to detect the change. One asteroid was supposed to crash into one moon of an exoplanet within their territory. Instead, it missed by several moons' worth of distance. So they tracked its trajectory and again found... nothing. 126 cycles of study later, and they kept finding nothing. No galaxies at the edge of the universe. Nothing. Just nothing. If they weren't scared enough, 23 cycles later, something happened that made many think of their respective apocalypse. Someone saw the Violictia in the sky at one other side of the universe. It was an irrefutable truth. He had recorded it. It was as clear as it could be that it was the Violictia. Entire fleets were sent to check it, but again, nothing. According to her calculations, the Violectia had been there for three cycles before disappearing again. People were afraid to look up, afraid of looking up and seeing the Violectia, but some still did. Fools! If only they hadn't. The Violectia wasn't the only one that appeared. Twenty-three cycles later, Andromeda appeared between two galaxies so close that it should have collided with them, but didn't. Andromeda was there for two cycles, enough to not collide and enough to scare everyone in the universe. Everyone was an edge. The intergalactic community stopped all current conflicts. It was the closest the universe was to universal peace. A shame that it wouldn't last considering who they were up against. The intergalactic community maintained constant communication with everyone, every minor blink of a tiny star was met with a fraction of a full armada appearing armed to the maximum degree. Then it happened. All the lost galaxies appeared at once, all of them close to the galaxies of the Xenos that sent their armadas to the Violectia the first time. And then, as soon as they came, they left. The humans were back, and they were mocking them. Mass suicides happened. Entire governments fell. 
but the newly formed absolute government of the intergalactic community actually managed to maintain order. The Agak wouldn't give up just yet. They just needed more time. The Agak sent their best scientists to the center of the universe. There, guarded by natural defenses and a third of their full armada, they were researching what happened to the humans. Twenty-three cycles later, it started. Communication lost with 138 galaxies at the edge of the universe. No traces, but neighboring galaxies saw, among others, that one and only Violetia. More information from the scientists at the center of the universe, but less allies to fight the humans. Sixteen cycles later, it continued. Communication lost with 245 galaxies. Again, no traces. The Agak ordered a full retreat of the entire armada, all sent to protect the center of the universe. Nine cycles later, it was worse. 365 galaxies lost. The Agak, or rather what was left of it, moved to the center of the universe with their scientists. Three cycles later, it finally happened. The Agak finally found the answer, but it wasn't thanks to the scientists. It was the members of the armada, the ones that found it out first. Their eyes saw the Violetia, what it had become, and what a magnificent and terrifying view it was. Eight seconds later, the scientists of the Agak, or rather, what was left of non-human sentient life in the universe, finally found an answer. But without anyone else to communicate it to, the message was only received by the humans. The humans turned the Violetia into their flagship, and the other galaxies have been turned into human vessels. There is no escape. Three seconds later, it didn't even matter. End of story. Story number two. Bringing in the big guns, written by Ryan Hundert. It has become somewhat of a common sense that advancement in technology leads to militarization in equipment sizes, be it in telecommunications, computing, or weaponry. The Rantus, for example, has miniaturized their computing devices to the point that their common handheld devices are comparable to most supercomputers of their rival species. The Gerwin biggest battleships are the size of Anjari corvettes, manned with only three crew, yet still packed with enough firepower to demolish a large city in a single volley. Anjari interstellar telecommunications arrays are integrated within their, and some other species, common household devices. The marvel of miniaturization enables most species to focus on the aesthetic aspect of their tech, because they don't have to worry about the space to put their equipment. Indari Collective even foregone their physical bodies entirely, allowing them to stay within their home system and preserving its pristine condition, despite having a third largest population size in the galaxy. Humanity, however, hasn't exactly caught up with this trend. As their technology advances, the larger and uglier their spaceships seem to become. Sure, their telecommunications arrays are as miniaturized, but their weapons surely haven't shrunk even a little bit. If anything, it slowly grows bigger by the years. Take the prize Metsu-class battleship, for example. Seven kilometers long spaceship with basically a single greatest cannon in the galaxy had ever seen. The spine-mounted artillery took almost half of the ship length, accelerating a neutronium round a hundred meters in diameter to a whopping five percent of the speed of light. The main targeting computer was a giant supercomputer composed of six thousand quantum computing cores, ensuring perfect hit 
by the main gun. The crew quarter has enough space to hold an invasion army for an entire planet. And their power core has enough power to somehow drive another thousand of point defense and missile launchers, as well as 60 auxiliary 2-meter caliber railguns. Yes, meters, not centimeters, as any other sensible race would have used. The ship was so huge that they have to invent a novel propulsion technology just to move the entire thing. Capable of invading an entire system on its own, barring ones controlled by Sei and Jari. Mutsu-class battleship, composed of fifths of human fleet. Where did they find the resources to build the entire thing? We might have never known. Perhaps we should ask the eerie silence of their home system. But it gets even better. A completed mecha structure. A colossal shell of negative mass exotic matter encasing an entire star they dubbed Dyson Sphere. Has been a target of at least 16 interstellar travel incidents in the last year alone due to their extremely low signature. Effectively undetected by anything other than hyperspace sensor systems. They used it to power the largest supercomputers, which doesn't even compare to Rantus or Indari Collective ship-level supercomputers as well as habitats for 13 trillion members of their species. And they have six of them, with more on the way. Of course, going big alone isn't enough to become the best. Their computer sucks compared to other species. Their weaponry, though surely impressive, can't hold against hard-cold numbers. They had discovered this by the hard way in fighting the Gerwin fleet right after they unveiled their new Mitsu classes. But size does matter, especially when you're planning an interstellar campaign. Why, if it doesn't, would we still be waving Crimson Anjar Federation flags instead of Azure ones? End of story. I would just quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and patrons. Caspar Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barkey, it's difficult to pronounce, Lord Azrakul and Arcadian.